Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, I'm Joe Levy, and on the latest episode of Inside the Studio, I sat down with one of the all-time great singer-songwriters, James Taylor. We talked about his new album, where his music comes from, and how telling his life story through his songs has helped him. Music saved my life, but I was lucky also to survive. I did some very stupid, some some years that were, were just really high risk, unnecessarily so, and a lot of people around us died, you know. So join me, Joe Levy, editor-at-large at Billboard, for this and other in-depth conversations with the biggest artists in music. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here in the home studio, Pond City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, here's what we're doing, everyone. This is a little special dish uh, and, and part one of a three-part series that I have a feeling will expand because uh, Casey Pegram uh, works here in the office. And Casey is uh, – I used to call him one of the video kids. There was uh, There was a group of people back when we did video that – uh, shot stuff and edited stuff and did all our video work. But uh, since we have sort of segued out of that, they uh, they segued uh, quite nicely into audio engineering and editing. Uh, and they do a great job producing a lot of our uh, top podcasts here. And uh, Casey certainly is on that team. And the reason I got Casey in here was because he is uh, he's the top cinephile here at work. He is a movie nut and really a student of film. In all the best ways. And we had a great conversation just now about uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining uh, from 1980, the classic, classic uh, Kubrick film, The Shining. And the conversation went as great as I expected it to. Um, I made notes, but we just ended up just having a really good talk. And I think you're going to really dig this. And so what we decided to do was do a three-part Kubrick series with Casey uh, and do like one a month. And we decided, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you just listen because we talk about what we're going to go with. But uh, part one was The Shining. So here we go with uh, the wonderful and charming and super knowledgeable Casey Pegram on The Shining. Have you been in any movies lately? Gosh, let me pull up my uh, Do you have a- <laughs> my Letterboxd app and see. What's that? Letterboxd is like a kind of like a social network for movies only. Uh-huh. So you make an account, you log the movies you see, like what day you watched it. Yeah. You can give it like a five out of five star rating. Oh, cool. And you can write a review if you feel like it. Yeah. You can follow other people, see what they've been watching. People can comment on your reviews. Cool. So it's just like a cool way to kind of talk movies with yeah. like-minded people. 
Well, I, I made a show. I didn't know I could just get an app. <laughs> <laughs> I started a, a podcast. Yeah. So what we're doing, so everyone knows, is Casey here at work is sort of the leading cinephile. Is that fair to say? I'm I'm very modest, but okay, if you say so. <laughs> I think you're the leading cinephile. Yeah, maybe so. And, and, and a group full of cinephiles. True. Uh, but you take your shit seriously, and I've always respected that. Um, like you, you, you're voted most likely to own the Criterion <laughs> of anything, Blu-ray pretty much. Yeah, anything. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've always appreciated that. So I thought, you know what, this show is kind of just becoming whatever I want it to be, as long as we put out two shows a week. Yeah. So I was like, why don't I get Casey in here and let's do like, and this may go beyond three parts, but let's do a three-part tribute to Kubrick. Yeah. I've been I've been racking my mind. What yeah. are those three going to be? And well, I think, yeah, yeah. I won't. Know? I won't. I do know. Yeah, I do know the three now. But I don't know if we should announce it or if we should. Yeah, let's. Well, let's talk about it because yeah. uh, you, it's it's probably not the three you would expect. Okay. I would say. Oh, this is gonna be fun. Yeah. So you pick The Shining first, mm-hmm. and that's what we're gonna cover today. And that's what sprang this idea. Yeah. Um. Is Barry Lyndon on the list? Barry Lyndon is absolutely on the list, yeah. Okay, I'm really excited because I have not seen that movie. Which is, I understand because that movie is kind of overlooked in a certain sense in his filmography, although it has like a huge, huge surge of people who love it now. Uh I think it's... Like a lot of his movies have a lot of uh, retroactive... Yes, yeah. There's always like a 10 or 20 year period where people kind of like catch up to his stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that happened in a big way with Barry Lyndon, I think. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Eyes Wide Shut to come around because I really mm-hmm. like that movie and a lot of people hated it. Well, that's the third one that I wanted to talk really? about. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Because what the hell I'm am excited. I going to say about 2001? What am I going to say about Strange Love? Like, yeah. I feel like certain Kubrick movies, as brilliant as they are, uh-huh. they are well-trod territory. Yeah. And it's very difficult to have anything original to say about them. So, but also I think, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut and Barry Lyndon, I think, still have... There's there's just so much more to uh-huh. be said about them and yeah to be you know I, I just saw his white shut again uh, like a month or two ago and yeah it just every time it gets better for me save it yeah yeah oh, yeah we'll keep it <laughs> I'm glad you picked that too because I've always defended that movie um, the other one that I've never seen I mean I was looking over his list there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. believe it or not that I need to check out because I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. I've never seen Paths of Glory. Oh, that one's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So like that I'm, that would probably be number four. Well, maybe yeah. we should just keep trotting these out. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. Then. Yeah. So we'll put out one of these a month and just see how it goes. Yeah. Uh but in this first episode, I wanted to uh I didn't want to give you sh- I didn't want to shortchange you on the normal movie crush stuff. Sure. So we'll talk a little bit about your background. Uh and then for the other stuff we'll just we'll go all Kubrick. Absolutely. Um but what were you uh you grew up in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I grew up in, uh, well, I was born in Marietta, but then we mm-hmm. moved to Roswell when I was like three or four. Okay. So I, you know, mostly grew up in Roswell. Did you go to Roswell High? I did go to Roswell High. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's where my uh, nephew and niece, well, he's at Tech now, but she's still at Roswell. Yeah. Good school. Good school. Good school. And you know my, you know Chad Crowley, mm-hmm. uh, who was on here for Chinatown, for sure. those of you listening, his daughter goes there now. Yeah. They moved out there. Oh, okay, okay. And it's just like one of the great public schools. Yeah. Supposedly. It has a, it has a nice reputation. Yeah. yeah. What did you uh when did you first realize that you loved movies sort of more than like your average whatever third grader? Well, this is why I picked <laughs> The Shining because 
It was I was I was really into Stephen King as a kid. Okay, and I was I was a precocious kid. I read a lot of books early on yeah. that probably were not age appropriate. So I was yeah. reading a lot of Stephen King. And At what, what age? I mean, I, I remember finishing The Shining on like the last day of like fifth grade, going into sixth grade. <laughs> like it was like the end of the fifth grade summer, going yeah, into sixth grade. The next that's day. great. Um, I was reading Encyclopedia Brown. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, so I was I was reading a lot of Stephen King. I had an aunt who was very into horror movies, my uh-huh. aunt Debbie, and she made me like a VHS dub of like the Kubrick Shining. Oh, nice. And so I remember they had like a VHS collection at their house and I was looking at their tapes and I saw The Shining. It was next to like 2001. Uh-huh. And I, I was kind of looking at the back cover and I just saw like Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. I had, not, I had not seen 2001 at that point, but mm-hmm. I, I somehow I understood just through kind of like cultural osmosis that uh-huh. it was like a big deal. Right. And it kind of, it just it just made an impression on me right then and there. Mm-hmm. Like the same person made these two very different seeming movies. And, yeah. Um, so that was like the kind of the, the beginning of that light bulb going off in my head. Like, oh, there's like a thing called a director and like, right. you know, the really good ones are kind of leave their imprint on a movie. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like my very, very early kind of uh, introduction in a way into like the auteurist idea of cinema. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I was, geez, I don't know when it occurred to me that there were directors and what they did. Uh, and and espe- I don't know. I'm not sure when I sort of got clued into that. And I love movies, but I, I was just sort of a dumb, dumb kid watching movies. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I was I was that a lot of the time too. Yeah. I didn't get like serious right away. Um we had like a dollar theater in Roswell at the time. Oh yeah, those are great. And so I, you know, I would go to see like Who Framed Roger Rabbit like over and over and over and over again. So you were a child, and I didn't know who Robert <laughs> Zemeckis was. You know, that didn't that didn't right. cross my mind. Yeah, you didn't um, know he would go on to do very bad movies. Yeah, very... I, I, yeah, I don't know the last Zemeckis movie I saw. It might actually be Roger Rabbit. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, but you know, I was I was always going to movies as a kid. Um, I love movies. We had that dollar theater, like I said. So Do you have it was, siblings? No, I'm an only child. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of like in the playroom with mm-hmm. the VHS. Absolutely. I imagine. Yes, absolutely. Wearing yeah. out the tapes. Yeah. yeah. And were your are your parents into that kind of stuff? Like, or were you sort of just charting your own path? They were. I mean, they were into movies. I remember them showing me like Raiders of the Lost Ark at a really young age. Yeah. Me being freaked out when the guy's face melted. Sure. And, you know, I remember. I have a distinct memory of like. Watching, you know, Raiders in particular, I think because the way the credits were laid out, they showed the first part of the movie in letterbox, and you know, yeah. with the black bars at the top and bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like bothered by this as a child. I didn't understand about aspect ratios, right? You, and so I was like, part of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Mom, Dad, when is when are those black bars going to go away? <laughs> I, I hate this, you know. And they're like, Don't worry, don't worry. Like as soon as the credits over, it's going to go to you know, it's going to fill the whole TV. It'll be fine. Uh-huh. And little did I know, of course, like, right? You know, years later, you realize like, oh, actually, I want those to stay there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you want those bars? Yeah. 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 Well, your parents got it, though, so they mm-hmm. knew something about movies. My yeah. dad probably would have been like, I don't know, something's wrong with the TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They they knew enough to to kind of tell me about that stuff. And, yeah. I mean, they were – we did go to movies a lot. We watched movies at home a lot. We had a nice VHS collection. So, yeah, yeah they were they were into movies. What uh, – did you have any, like – I often talk to people about older influences and a lot of times it's siblings. But mm-hmm. did you have anyone like that in your life that was sort of feeding you stuff or were you – really like out there finding your own shit. 
I kind of, yeah, I kind of was just out there on my own. I uh-huh. didn't really have like any older like relatives or, you know, like the cool older brother right. type um, to really initiate me into that. So that's cool though. Yeah, I like, just kind of, kind of found my own way, I guess. Yeah. And were you uh, reading like, uh, I mean, were you, when did you start to become into the industry? Like, I would I, like, say. Like I started getting Premier Magazine yeah, when I was yeah, like yeah, 13 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I would say I was getting more like Rolling Stone spin. I was maybe more into the music side of things for mm-hmm. a while. Um, I, I think I subscribed to Film Comment maybe when I was like 15 or 16. That's a good start. And that was a good start. Um, yeah, I, I, we had in, in high school, we had a, like a direct, uh, what do they call it? Directed study program, uh-huh. which is like part of the tag program kind of. But it's like you get a, um, uh, a period out of the day mm-hmm. to just kind of make up your own curriculum, do yeah. your own thing. And so I did one on like the French New Wave. <laughs> and so I was doing like Truffaut and Godard and in high know, school, Romare and people like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, man, yeah. That's great. Yeah, in like 10th or 11th grade. Um, I think I also watched like Modern Time. I don't know how Modern Times fit into that, but uh-huh. Chaplin was great. Yeah. Man, so that that's pretty cool. That's certainly ahead of the curve, I think, for most like – Goonies loving. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know. I mean, I'm into all that stuff too. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. You're not, you're not too uh highbrow for that kind of No, thing. no. You know, I, I had a I had a friend growing up who um he had those kind of parents. He was also an only child who just like let him watch R-rated movies mm-hmm. whenever, you know. Yeah. So they had like Predator and Yeah. Commando and sure. just all the great you know, 80s Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know. Um, His finest performance in yeah. Commando. Yeah, yeah. Uh, does it come up later, the first Ari movie? Is that a thing that... Yeah, yeah. yeah hold okay, on okay, okay, hold on to that. Keep that in your pocket. Yeah. When did you first start, uh, because you're also a, a filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, when did you start playing around with cameras? That came a little later, surprisingly. Well, no, I, t- that's, that's not true, actually. Um, we had a camcorder, uh, one of those big... You know, heavy, heavy monstrosities sure. that like will break your shoulder to hold. Yeah, look like the action news. Yeah, guy. exactly, exactly. Yeah. E, uh, e, uh, ENG kind of camera. Um, and you know, my mom was primarily the person using mm-hmm. it. Uh, and so, but around like maybe thirteen, I wanted to make you know just like nothing serious whatsoever, just yeah. like having fun with like my my friends and stuff. You're like just a little riff on Kurosawa. Well, like the <laughs> the movie we made, it was it was you know it was a short. It was probably like ten or fifteen minutes, maybe uh-huh. twenty, uh, with my friend Ben. We we were both like heavily into The Shining at that point. Yeah, and so we made this kind of riff on The Shining called I think it was called The Gunslinger, uh-huh. um, or The Bank Robber, something like that, and. Uh, yeah, it was like set in the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, it you know begins in the West. This guy tries to rob a bank. He gets killed, and then like you know, fast forward 150 years later, this guy's descendant is just living a normal life in the uh-huh. modern world, and he's like a grown man, even though it's my friend Ben, and he's like 13, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and like the spirit of this you know fallen bank robber uh-huh. comes back to haunt him, and like nice. you know tries to break into his house, and it's very shining and. Uh-huh. I think we were even like we didn't, you know, there was no editing whatsoever. Yeah, just you had all to edit in all in camera. camera. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, obviously you can't add music to anything. So uh-huh. if we did have music, we would just have like a CD player and yeah. like speakers <laughs> like in the room and like cue it up. Um, so we were, you know, we were kind of tapping into some of the the classical music that's like in The Shining and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, which Kubrick did actually. I, well, we'll get to that, but yeah, he would play shit. While yeah, they, yeah, while yeah. They shot. Did you watch that making of? I did the Vivian Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. I was hoping you. Yeah, I figured you. Oh yeah, that. yeah. 
You're like, I own that on Criterion. Too. <laughs> well, it's on, on the, it's on the Blu-ray, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, oh, that is? It's mm-hmm. on the Blu-ray? It's one of the extras, yeah. Oh, okay. But it was on the DVD, like, way back in the day. I had never heard of it, so. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. no, there's no other footage like that, really, oh, of God, him working dude. and. I wanted. Yeah. I wanted it to be an hour long. Oh, I want those dailies. I just want, like, all the raw footage. Yeah. Yeah. It's all interesting <laughs> to me. It's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um. Now, when did uh, – so you started making – do you still have that movie, by the way? The, uh, the I was just thinking about that last night. I remember at some point after – long afterwards, maybe by the time I was making, like, more kind of, like, pro sort of films. Yeah. Um, I think the VHS tape is still around, and I meant to dub it, mm-hmm. uh, like, into digital format and, like, yeah, burn yeah. it on a DVD, just back Transfer it up it. somewhere. <laughs> So I think it's it's floating around somewhere like my parents' house. I really need to find it. I hope yeah. that tape is still hasn't deteriorated. Yeah. My brother and I made a uh, – I want to say my brother and I. It was really my brother. Uh, made a uh, Super 8 movie with G.I. Joe's when I was like – I was probably like 7 and he was 10 or maybe yeah. 8 and 11. Yeah. And I still remember like it had a little plot about a – we had this little shiny red button – that was, you know, we it was some like important disc that he had to take care of and yeah. transfer to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was stop motion, you know, because they were GI Joe dolls, and uh, and real film Super Eight camera. Yeah, and it and it looked okay. Oh for, yeah, for a couple of little kids, for sure. Yeah, but again, I was like total the little assistant schlep, uh, and and Scott was the filmmaker. Yeah. Well, it's like when I was making my films, like my mom was the camera person. You know, I had no thought whatsoever of. Uh, composition or cinematography yeah. or lighting or any of that it was uh-huh. just like mom like here's here's the scene you yeah. know and i remember we even had a scene where uh uh somebody gets a like a bag put over them mm-hmm. and then we were going to cut very quickly and you know take the person out of the bag put some like pillows in mm-hmm. and then throw that bag down the stairs right cut again get the person back in the bag and have <laughs> them crawl out like dazed and uh-huh. and uh and my mom deliberately like kept rolling longer on the getting in and out falling part to make it clear to anybody who watched that like no <laughs> child was actually harmed in the process of making this film and I was like mom you're ruining ruin the, the effect <laughs> yeah 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 it's like mom the whole point is to make it believable you know that's really sweet yeah oh that's funny yeah that's so valuable to a kid though just uh even though you're not like you don't know what you're doing yet like just getting that camera in your hands oh yeah and fucking around with it your imagination just just like yeah on you know supercharged at that age yeah, yeah. and and then you learn as you go like composition yeah. and but that when you're thinking of in camera editing and for those of you who don't know what that means it means you are just shooting it as it is and like you're not editing anything after so you have to really think about how shots match up and line up in sequence to tell a story if you're thinking about that if sure. you're not just thinking from scene to scene and location to location which is definitely right. more where we were at yeah we, we were not that slick yet sure but yeah. it's it's a good like uh What's well, like Paul it's a Thomas good Anderson? Lesson to be you know, learned. making um, the Dirk Ziegler story, and, and oh, right. he shot that on VHS or Beta or whatever, uh-huh. and he had to edit that, you know, uh, deck to deck, mm-hmm. and get the cuts just right. You can find that on YouTube. It's fascinating. Oh, really? And he obviously had way more of a director's yeah. mentality, you know, even at like whatever it was, 16, 17 years old. Well, those are the people that become Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <you> know? yeah. <laughs> it's like seeing, you know. An Olympic sprinter, and like even when he was ten, he right, was, right, right, he had right. really good form. Yeah, and was super fast. Yeah. Um. So you, uh, one thing I did want to talk about too before we get to the shining is you are a a um 
Francophile mm-hmm. as well. Yes. And that is to say you love Paris mm-hmm. and France. Absolutely. love the people, the language, yeah. the food, the city. And you go and spend quite a bit of time there each year. Yeah. Usually. Yes. Uh, and I know one of your favorite things to do is go see movies. Absolutely. So tell me a bit about why you like going to see movies in France. Yeah. And what that's like and what that means to you. So that had th- – there's a really interesting kind of weird – progression there because I I picked French just arbitrarily as my language when mm-hmm. you have to start taking those classes in like sixth or seventh grade. Yeah. And I always struggled with it. I didn't like it. Uh, it was like my worst subject. Interesting. And I even had to get like a private tutor mm-hmm. uh, to kind of just keep my head above water. Right. Uh, I, I just really resented it. I felt like I'll never use this. I'll never want to use this. Wow. Why are they making me do this? And um, that's so funny knowing. Yeah, you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Well, I feel like yeah, a lot of education is like that. Sure, it's like you wish you could have the mentality of like an adult, yeah. you know, so you could actually appreciate all that stuff at the time. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I took took French classes all throughout like middle school, high school, a few semesters in college, and throughout none of it was I like a francophile in the least. Right. And uh, it wasn't until maybe like studying film a little more seriously in college. I'd done the new wave thing in high school, and then I got really, really, really into Godard. I'm still really, really into Godard. Um, but, you know, in college, I was watching a lot of his films. Mm-hmm. and That'll that, make I, you fall in love with Yeah, Paris. yeah. Well, and especially at that time, uh, once you had gotten past, like, everything that was on DVD in the U.S., mm-hmm. there was just, like, he's made so many films that a lot of them had DVDs in other parts of the world, especially France, that didn't have subtitles. Right. There were, you know, just tomes of interviews with him that had never been translated into English. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other filmmakers that I learned about through him had maybe never had even a U.S. release. Right. And so very quickly I kind of realized, like, there's this whole other world of cinema that is kind of removed from, like, mm-hmm. the Anglosphere. Yep. And, um, and, you know, rather than, like, wait around for somebody to translate it all or, or uh-huh. make subs, I just decided... Because I already had this basis of uh-huh. French anyway, I could kind of like stumble my way through reading a few interviews here and there. Yeah. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And then the other the other big part of that was actually going to Paris for mm-hmm. the first time in 2011. Right. Um, I was originally supposed to do – it was going to be like – it was my first time in Europe. It was my first time overseas, first mm-hmm. time like – you know, traveling solo. Oh, man, it's the best. It was incredible. And, you know, I was supposed to do like five or six cities in a month. Right. And, you know, I did London first and I came to Paris, had like five days in Paris. Mm-hmm. It blew my mind completely. And then I moved on to like Munich in Germany right. and I just was not feeling it anymore, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like, I want to go back to Paris. So I like, Should've you know. Should to Berlin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I did later. I yeah. love Berlin. Um, but at the time Munich, you know, just was not Paris. Yeah. And so, uh, so I ended up kind of rearranging my whole trip Mm -hmm. and, you know, canceled a bunch of reservations at great expense and, you know, double, double back to Paris and stayed there for another like week or so Uh before I eventually did move on to Italy, which was fantastic as well. Yeah. But, you know, my, my takeaway from that whole trip was like, I want to go back to Paris yeah. And um, I remember that trip, dude. Like, yeah. You came yeah, yeah, back yeah. a changed man. A changed man. man, yes. Yeah, yes. For real. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, there's, it, it, that is a very like before and after kind of inflection yep. point in my life. Yeah. Big time. And so um, since then, you know, that, that city and French culture in general 
it just has such a historical relationship to cinema. Mm-hmm. Even the idea of the director as like the artist that originated with the French, that mm-hmm. originated with people like André Bazin and the Caillou Cinema Group. Auteur is a French word, right? Auteur theory, yeah, yeah, yeah. author. And, um, you know, I, I, this is kind of a digression, but like the whole idea of the author, like when they were deploying it, it almost meant the opposite of what it means now. Mm-hmm. They were talking about like a John Ford or an Alfred Hitchcock or something, mm-hmm. somebody that was working within the studio system that was working within constraints mm-hmm. that had like a certain staple of actors that they're probably having to pick from that had, you know, finish one movie on a Friday, start shooting the next one the next Monday kind of thing. That's crazy. And the idea was that even though they're in this very like mechanized factory kind of assembly line mm-hmm. system, the what they call the genius of the system that mm-hmm. produces these great works, even though there's not necessarily like the most artistic mindset about doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were still you could tell a John Ford movie when you looked at it. You could tell an Alfred Hitchcock movie. You could tell, you know, y- y- there's something about these filmmakers that left their personal stamp mm-hmm. on material that may not have been at first glance like personal to them. Yeah. And so because the whole studio system was set up to com- yeah, combat that. Ex- exactly, exactly. And so, you know, this this auteur theory starts to happen. And then now when you when you think of like the American cinema in the seventies or something, mm. or you think of like sixties European cinema, you think of like Antonioni or something. Yeah. Like he's not working in any studio system. Mm. He's not working you know, he's making exactly the film he wants to and doing it in this style that is entirely his own. And that's what we call an auteur now. It's like right. somebody who kind of gets their way about everything, uh-huh. um, which is in, in a weird way. Um, it's like uh, there's this critic, Manny Farber. He talks about um, white elephant art and termite art. Uh-huh. And white elephant art is this idea of like um, prestige pictures. It's mm-hmm. like the stuff that comes out every December. It's yep. like, you know, Oscar the, the bait. Oscar bait. Exactly. That's kind of like white elephant art. It like announces itself as great art. Right. And it's, you know, it, it's trying to be capital G great. Right. Whereas with termite art, it could be some some kind of like B-movie genre picture mm-hmm. that is just fantastic from right. start to finish. And he much preferred the termite art, the stuff that was not pretentious, that oh, was not like, you know, it was not trying to announce itself mm-hmm. as, you know, high art. It just yeah. did what it did incredibly well and was like the best thing you've ever seen so yeah it's it's just interesting how our our notion yeah. has changed like today everybody's a no tour right everybody has to have like right. their signature shot or their kind of like thematic thing that they keep coming back to um but it's but it's but almost it's the opposite Snyder. yeah 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 exactly exactly <laughs> like i said everybody everybody now does yeah this. yeah that always bugs me now that you mentioned that when um November and December roll around and all the studios, they're basically like the subtext is we've given you garbage all year. Yep. But now time for your vegetables. Here yeah. here are some really good movies. Yeah. Whereas in the seventies and eighties they were and I talk about this and pe- I'm sure people are sick of hearing it, but you look up the movies of like nineteen eighty two or nineteen eighty three. Yes. And they're just fucking across the board, like quality films. Wall to wall. It's like classic, there's, there's classic, garbage, classic. Yeah. But it's like, you know, oh, yeah. a movie that would come out on any given Friday would mm-hmm. be like um, Paul Newman's uh, The Verdict yes. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always call them adult, like movies for adults. Yeah. And they just don't make those anymore unless it's Oscar season. Grownups in a room talking. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I want to see more of that stuff. That's why movies like 
Michael Clayton resonates yes. so much with me. Yes. And sort of these movies that feel like they're uh, throwback yeah. to like the 70s or something. For sure. Yeah. Um, so what about seeing movies in Paris? Like what, what are some of your great experiences? Oh, man. I've had so many. I mean, one thing that's amazing about Paris is that so many filmmakers live there mm-hmm. that very often they will do what they call avant-première. It's just like uh, early preview, sneak preview, mm-hmm. basically. And the filmmakers will often be there in person. Right. And so you can just go on like a Friday night. Like last time I was in Paris, I saw Anna Karina, mm-hmm. uh, who's in you know all the Godard movies in the 60s. And she was there presenting uh, a film that by uh, Jacques Rivette, La Religieuse, The Nun, mm-hmm. um, which had been banned by the French government in the 60s and has just now recently been like restored and released, um, you know, 40 something years later. Wow. 50 something years later. And um, yeah, so I mean that that alone is is pretty impressive. That they have they have just such a culture of loving film, right? Um, there's there's a street in Paris, Rue des Écoles, mm-hmm. like the street of schools, mm-hmm. um, where within like five minutes walking distance, you have like five amazing repertory cinemas, right? And if you read about the history of these cinemas, these are like the same cinemas that all the new wave directors were going to in the 50s and, like, kind of getting obsessed with film. Mm -hmm. So the cinemas themselves have, like, a history and a kind of tradition. Right. And and then, of course, the films they show, they have a great affection for a certain kind of American cinema there. Mm -hmm. They're not showing, like, the big blockbusters in these theaters, but they are showing, like, I I remember going to see, like, Vanishing Point, for instance, which was... You know, I, I had never seen it. I had heard about it. Yeah. Like, Steven Soderbergh, I think, talks about it a lot uh-huh. in reference to, like, the Limey. But, um, God, I love the Limey. Oh, the Limey's incredible. So good. That's, that's another one yeah. that would be great to do. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, there's just – there's a sense of, like, you're, you're, you feel embedded within, like, the history of cinema. Uh-huh. From the room that you're sitting in where maybe some other great filmmaker sat and watched the movie yeah. and it made some impression on them. Yeah. Um, to the films that they're showing, mm-hmm. to just the care that they bring to curating these like retrospectives that yeah. will just run for weeks and weeks where you they play like every movie by a director. Like when I was there most recently, it was Bergman. Mm-hmm. They were showing like 33 Bergman films because oh, that Criterion set just came out. So they have all these restorations yeah. and they're and, just and showing them. it comes them. with a noose and a handgun. Yeah. And- <laughs> oh, God, I know. Like that was that was intense, seeing like five month. Bergman movies in a week. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's that's wow. uh, that's tough. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so um, – and then, of course, you, you walk out of the, the theater and you're in Paris. Yep. And, again, it's like yep. that's the cafe where Jean-Luc Godard met Anna Karina for the yeah. first time or – that's that street corners in breathless or mm-hmm. like whatever like it it's just kind I of like that shit, man. you are just like completely immersed mm-hmm. and uh and it's also an a, amazing city for like international cinema mm-hmm. um not just french cinema or american cinema but films from all over the world right. come and play in paris again with like the utmost kind of respect yeah. and um, the audiences are fantastic. I've never had a bad experience with somebody on their phone or oh, that's people talking or people <laughs> eating loudly. Or, right. Um, it's like even even before you know, even while the trailers are going on, if anybody talks, it's in like an absolute whisper. Right. And as soon as the film begins, it's just like lights out. Like everybody is just dead silent. That's you know? great. So you have to go to like. And Atlanta doesn't even have one, but in LA, if you go to like the ArcLight, yes, yeah, those are you know generally very yeah. well respected film lovers. Higher ticket price, yep. Reserve seating is just like yeah, get the riffraff out of there. Reserve seating at the at the ArcLight. 
Uh, yeah, for they sure. They do. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, and like it, zero tolerance policy for yeah. anything like that will kick you out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's great. Was it like even the even the babies in France don't cry during movies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never never had. I got. I remember going to see The Ring here at the the landmark, uh-huh. and there was a baby in the audience. It's like, what are you the even ring? doing? What? Why are you here to see The Ring with a, like Jesus. an infant? And yeah, the baby started crying, and the whole audience rioted and kicked them out. And <laughs> just like, what are you doing? It's Friday night, like. Uh, I know what you're talking about, though, like leaving the movie in in Paris and like you're on that like the biggest backlot in the world. Mm -hmm. Like I think you like myself get a lot of get a lot out of uh, being in the place where something happened. Yeah, there's an and not to be too hippy dippy, but the energy of whether it's like standing uh, where Elvis stood in Sun Studios or like these places that I've toured where. Uh, some people are like, oh, cool. There's Sun Records, and like that's that's small, yeah, smaller than yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I and not just me or you, but a lot of people really get a lot out of going in there and just being like, man, this is where that shit happened. Absolutely. Like I'm standing in in the place where greatness yes. was achieved. Yeah. And that's just such a cool thing. I think. I mean, the smallness is what's amazing about it. In yeah. a way, the 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 humble surroundings, the yep. kind of like you realize like. A, a normal human being did this, you know, right. a very talented, yeah. brilliant one, but still like a mortal, you know, uh-huh. a person. I like that feeling. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's it's inspiring. Uh-huh. It's a reminder that like you may put these people on some kind of pedestal now. Right. But they were just human beings. Yeah. And, you know, they had their flaws and they were just doing the best they could. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what was so interesting to me about watching um, uh, the Kubrick behind the scenes. And for those of you listening Kubrick's daughter, Vivian, uh, did a uh, – I mean, it's only, unfortunately, about 25 minutes long. Yeah. But some of, like, just to see Stanley Kubrick on set working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And apparently he he didn't, like – he wanted final cut of this. Yeah, of course. Of course he did. didn't want himself yeah. in it very much. Yes, yes. So I'm sure there's more footage out there. Oh, there is. But just to sure. see him yeah. talking about lenses and saying, check the gate mm-hmm. and, like, all these normal things uh, – because he's someone that I sort of deify, mm-hmm. and to see him at work thinking he's just a director. Yes, there's a great moment on uh, there's a commentary track for Steven Soderbergh's um, Sex Lies and Videotape. Oh yeah, it's from like one of my favorites. You know, too. it's from when the DVD first came out, which is probably like ninety seven, ninety eight, mm-hmm. and uh, it's Soderbergh and Neil Labute who had no involvement oh, in in Sex Lies, yeah. but was just you know for some reason he was there on the commentary to talk sure. about it. And they're they're both talking on the commentary about having recently seen the making of The Shining mm-hmm. because the first Kubrick DVDs had just come out like the year before. Yeah, and you know they had never heard Kubrick's voice. Right. So they're like they're like it's like hearing the voice of God. You know? I know. It's man. like it's unbelievable. <laughs> like just just wa- you know watching this legendary figure just like yeah. amble around and like you like you see him come up with that shot uh, underneath Jack Nicholson. Yeah, where he's holding the, the, the director's viewfinder. Yeah, and you know he's like. Looking at it, he's like, yeah, let's just do it from down here, you know? Yeah. Just something that iconic that uh-huh. kind of, like, burns itself into your mind, you know? But yeah. then you're you're just seeing somebody kind of casually come up with something like that. Yeah, and that's one thing that surprised me. Like, I did a bunch of article reading about Kubrick over the last couple of days. And um, one of the guys I'll talk about a few times in this is uh, he was an actor in one of his earlier movies, and they bonded um, big time, and he became Leon Vitale. Yes. And he became his personal assistant for, like, the remainder yeah. of his 20 years working. And he has so much great insight. But he was like, yeah, he always gets this 
um, rap as a control freak. And you would think that he had everything like so meticulously planned and everything storyboarded. And that was the kind of control freak he was. Yeah. He said, but he would go in there and then you see it in mm-hmm, this documentary mm-hmm. and be like, well, all right, let's figure this out. Yeah. Let's reblock it. Let's let's get like two or three lenses to have on hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it all sort of built out from that moment. Yeah. And then in The Shining, of course, in uh, very famously, um, the rewrites. Yes. You know where Jack is even in that documentary. Uh, that one part where they have Nicholson, and the the, the woman uh, comes up. I don't know if it's a script supervisor or who, but hands him the sides, and she says. He's kind of giving her a hard time. He's like, yeah, I had nothing to do between midnight and 2 a.m. <laughs> and she said, well, this isn't the final script, you know. And he went, right. He said, it's just something to consider. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then he looks at the camera and he said, I quit using my script. I just take the ones they type up each day. Yeah. And that was yeah. a very famous story that there were so many changes. And like you just said off, off mic that Kubrick, you see him in the background while they're doing this. He's just banging away, banging away at the typewriter. Banging yeah. away pages. Yeah, yeah. So he would learn his lines minutes before shooting sometimes. Yes. yeah. And, uh, I mean, for a control freak, that's a very loose way to work. Yeah. You know? Well, I think, I think it's, it's sort of like you have to – you have to prepare at least Kubrick the way Kubrick saw it by doing this like – incredible amount of work up front mm-hmm. it gives you this solid framework that you can then be very loose within right and still be very very on on very very solid footing that mm-hmm. like the film's not going to drift completely in terms of tone or in terms right. of theme it's like you have to kind of establish like a, a very strong baseline framework and then within that you can kind of just like yeah go crazy yeah. well and that's what they say uh, actors say the best um or a lot of actors say that the best thing they do is t- to prepare and then forget it all. Yeah, 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 and yeah. And then that way you can just go on instinct. Yes. And all that shit is just part of your DNA. Exactly. It's like a reflex or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock. He constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. So should we talk about The Shining or Kubrick in general or or uh do that do Kubrick second? Yeah, 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 you yeah. Do that? Yeah, let's get into get, get into The Shining. All yeah. right. Well, first of all, I saw this um well, I saw it uh on my flight to Australia <laughs> for the okay. stuff you should know tour. Yeah. So I was it was at whatever, 3 in the morning, at however many thousands of feet in the air. Yeah. Uh, which was a really creepy way to see it and yeah. a cool way to see it because the good headphones mm-hmm. and like you're really get, getting everything. Yeah. No interruptions, no phones. Sure, sure. Um, but I did watch it again last night, of course, 
Was it? Which was six weeks later. Was on the plane. That wasn't your first time seeing it, was no, it? No, no, no. Okay, no, okay. No, it but was just like semi-recently. Yeah, because I've watched it on a plane scene. before too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was just cool on the plane in the middle of the night. Yeah, to have yeah, that yeah. Just it's a good way seclusion. to see it. Absolutely. Um, but last night was really cool too, and I was able to make uh, make my notes. But um, I knew nothing, and I still know nothing much, even though I did read a little bit about the book. Mm-hmm. Um you had read that before the movie? Yeah, it's been a very, very long time since I read that book. And I do know that, like, this is kind of getting into the deep end quickly, but, you know, people people say that the reason that people are so um, willing to read so much into Kubrick's films is because he was so detail-oriented, because right. he was so controlling and precise. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people have kind of worked backwards from Stephen King's novel and then look at everything that Kubrick changed about it. Right. And Diane Johnson is uh, a screenwriter. Sure. Collaborator. Um, everything that they changed about the novel and making it into the film. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, if he changed that, it was for a reason. What was right. he trying to do by changing that? What does that tell us about what he was you saying with the really film? You can really go so down on? a rabbit hole Absolutely, doing that. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, and of course, for those of you who don't know, uh, King has very famously for years poo-pooed the movie in general. Yep. Um and still does, I think, for and well, he, I, he made that really bad TV version yeah, in the nineties. Did you see that? Yeah, I watched it when it when it came out. Was it any good? No. Not at it's, all. It's huh? the guy from Wings, uh, yeah. uh Stephen <laughs> Weber. Stephen Weber. Uh he plays Jack Torrance. Yeah, and um the casting was you know, they they suspect. have like the the novel has one of the kind of the set pieces of the novel is that there are these uh, hedge animals right, that come the, to life. Yeah, I've heard that. And there's no hedge maze in the novel. Right. So that's a huge addition to the movie, of course. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, it's it's a typical 90s miniseries. Like, the effects are not good. Yeah. Um, the, the production design obviously cannot even begin to compete with yeah. what Kubrick achieved. And, and King had a heavy hand in that, Yeah, right? he did. He was, it was like, here's my chance to, like, make it the uh-huh. way I want to make it. And it's everybody's <laughs> like, no thanks, Stephen, you know? Oh man, I feel bad for him in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we won't. Uh, I don't think we need to go down that rabbit hole. But he, suffice to say, King has is still sort of yeah down on, and and I think he's in later years at least acknowledged that it is a classic and that it was unsettling for him. Yeah, like ineffective in a way. Yeah, but uh, he he clearly was was not too happy, and especially with Shelley Duvall's performance. He thought, um, I think he called it the definition of misogyny mm. um, because he said her, I think he said her main, her only objective was to be dumb and to like scream. You know, there has been a lot of writing discussion in yeah. recent years about Shelley Duvall because I think her mental health is not great these days from what I understand. Yeah, very sad. And uh, and there has been some discussion of whether it was that experience on The Shining yeah. that might have like kind of, you know... Not caused it, but but did not do it any favors anyway. Perhaps, but yeah. if but she there's, has there's, genuine mental illness, yeah. it's, it didn't. It wasn't caused yeah. by Stanley Kubrick. Oh, sure, sure, sure. But she very famously went through hell yes. and back, and he was not kind to her. No, you can see that in the documentary. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, um, especially when compared to uh, the the bromance he had with Nicholson. Right, um, and it seems like he was just, and you know. We might as well talk about it. Kubrick um, made a career out of treating actors like garbage <laughs> yes. and putting them through hell. And I wanted to get your take on that. Like when you do a take 127 times, yeah. is it merely – is it perfectionism or is it 
he's trying to get an actor into such a state of fucked upness yeah. in the head that he gets what he wants. Uh, it's hard to say. You would almost have to see what take one looked like and then look at what take 127 <laughs> looked like. Well, and, and then, take and then, 30 and yeah, 40 yeah, yeah. and 60. But I do know, I will say that there's something about the acting across all of Kubrick's films mm-hmm. that is very off-putting for some people mm-hmm. because it's very, it's it's rarely is it very naturalistic. It's not really what we think of as like good acting in a certain way. Mm-hmm. There's There's a very like theatrical kind of quality to it. There's a very kind of stylization mm-hmm. there's it's just kind of like this weird aesthetic quality that he works with that in some ways maybe distances us emotionally a little bit from what we're watching mm-hmm. i mean i felt that last night watching the shining like jack nicholson's performance well people people have pointed out that he's so over he the seems top. kind of over the top like right from the beginning there's totally, there's not dude. much of an arc there yeah um He's he's sarcastic. He's uh-huh. kind of doing things with his eyebrows. Like yeah. he has this smirk a lot of the time. Uh-huh. He's making all these kind of like snarky comments. Like when they're driving up the mountain and they're talking about, yeah, it's okay. I saw it on the television set. All that uh-huh. the Donner party. It must be true. It yeah, was on the yeah, television. yeah, yeah. Like it's so. I mean, you look at other Jack Nicholson performances mm-hmm. from like the seventies, and he's so good, and and he yeah. can be so like human and believable that. You you have to figure that it's that it's something Kubrick wanted, obviously, with the number of takes he did, mm-hmm. with the way he directed the actors. Um, I mean, you know, there there are other directors who've done this and and continue to do this. Like David Fincher is also pretty yeah. notorious for doing many many takes. Mm-hmm. I think the the opening shot of uh, Social Network that that long back and forth mm-hmm. like two hander shot. I think they did like ninety eight or ninety nine times. Fuck man! And they were they were you know on set they're joking about David. Don't you want to do one more? Get to triple digits. He's like, no, ninety nine was good, or whatever. Wow. And uh, but you know they, it also you can go back before Kubrick in cinema. Somebody like um, Robert Bresson, mm-hmm. another French filmmaker who I, I think is incredible. Um, he would also do you know shots many many times. And he wanted the actors to just not act whatsoever, mm-hmm. to be so uh, unassuming and unaware and mm-hmm. unconscious and just, it was like pure behavior yeah, and pure instinct and like no real emoting, no real projecting, yeah, just kind of like exist in the moment and do the thing uh-huh. in the most kind of dispassionate way possible. And when you contrast that with like the kind of emotional character of what is going on, right. Um, he he thinks that this leads to a kind of transcendence and that you see something beautiful that like only cinema can achieve. Wow. And so, you know, you can't do it in theater because mm-hmm. you're not close enough in theater to see yeah. that kind of, you know, close up performance. So I don't know. I, I I think for Kubrick, maybe, you know, maybe he just knows that Ultimately, he's going to be stuck in the editing room. Mm-hmm. He's going to have to ultimately decide which take to use. So like and maybe he wants 100 options. options. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he just wants to be able to have that that granularity, that level of being yeah. able to modulate it up or down just 1% or 2%, you know? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, you, you know, this, the, the baseball bat scene is the one that they did 127 times. Oh, God. And, her, her walking backwards up the stairs and all that. Yeah, man. And she's so uh, – and, and Shelley Duvall is not someone I would ever have called a great actor. 
But I was really keyed in on her last night watching this, mm-hmm. and she's fucking outstanding. Oh, she's great. In this movie. I think she's. I mean, she's great. You know, have you ever seen like Robert Altman's Three Women? Yeah, she's, she's terrific great in, in that, that too. And, and in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in this role, it's like there's there's a couple of Wendy's. There's sort of the dopey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's a sort of a southern accent she's doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's sort of loping around. Yeah, and uh, sort of annoying. Hmm. But then, like the the scenes where she's breaking down and the terror, yeah, are so good, so human and relatable, and and you wonder is you it feel like, for her, yeah, and I feel for her in real life because I know that she was r- literally breaking down, yeah. But like he captured that, yeah, and she says, you know, whether or not it was just retrospective, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight or not, she is on film and in interview saying like. I learned more with him than anyone else. He got me to do things I never thought I could do. Yeah. And I really admire him as a man and as, as a filmmaker now. Yeah. But I, like, hated him at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting to – I don't know how to feel about it, you know? I mean, it's, it's like, like he's that, punishing her. It's like that boot camp mentality, yeah. you know? It's like the beginning of Full Metal Jacket or something. It's like, yeah. you know, um, you're putting me through hell uh-huh. and – Maybe you're crossing the line. Maybe you are, like, getting over into abusive mm-hmm. and being somewhat sadistic and so on. Yeah. But, like, at the end, you turn me into this other thing. And, I know. You know, it's – I don't know. It's hard to say whether that is at all at all defensible. I know. Or if it's just, like, a almost like a Stockholm Syndrome kind of mentality. Right. Where, like, <laughs> yeah. everybody just wants to – find a way to justify it afterwards so mm-hmm. that they can be at peace with it, you know? Yeah, to basically say uh, this year plus of my life was yeah. was worth it in the Yeah, end. yeah, yeah. Really interesting. I don't know, I don't know. I mean, that. I'm I'm very, you know, I I do have probably a higher disposition towards like almost saying that art exists in this almost kind of amoral mm-hmm. like ends do justify the means a little bit kind of thing. I mean, what happens on a film set stays on a film set. It used to anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And of course, I'm not justifying like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to justify like... Predatory or sexual, you know, But like, for instance, when when that footage from uh, the I Heart Huckabees set came out, David Russell like... Yeah, he and Lily Tom again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a part of me that, you know, understood this looks horrible to anybody that's not yeah. from this world, you know. Yep. And it is horrible just on its face. Right. But at the same time, you have to – I think sometimes people don't understand that, like, emotions run high. That's it, part it, of the work of yeah. creativity, part of the work of being an actor, it's being a director. It's not the business world. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. it's acceptable to it's, yell and scream. Exactly. It's this other thing. You're you're in this heightened state of emotion. Yeah. And if you're going to really give it – a hundred percent of everything that's within you. Yeah, you have to be willing to go to these extreme places, and sometimes that that can flare up. You yeah. know, conflict is going to flare up. You're going to say things that are very hurtful, or uh-huh. you know, behave in, in kind of immature and childish ways. But ultimately, like, I think I think so long as everybody that was on set is okay with it afterwards, anyway, mm-hmm. then you kind of just have to say. It is what it is. Like that's yeah. that's a little bit. You almost can't judge. You know, it, yeah. it's just. It just kind of, it, it's it's too personal and too kind of like internal yeah. to really look at it from the outside and, and judge it in that way. Well, since we're talking about that, I might as well read this one quote from uh, from Vitaly, his assistant. Uh, he said, "When I think of him, when I think of Stanley, I think of the most complete picture of humanity in one single person. Because you know, if you think you can get mad, 
he got mad, <laughs> but by the power of a thousand that we normal people can get mad. <laughs> if he was being generous, though, he could be embarrassingly generous. And you'd say, no, just stop that. Please stop. You know, you're yeah. being too generous. Whatever he did, uh, whatever anybody was or is, he was all of those things to the power of a gazillion. Mm. Uh which is interesting. You know, he says he'd never yelled. He would get angry, but he wouldn't scream at actors. He always kept – and Fincher, for better or for worse, is sort of a legendary screamer. Mm. And I knew people that worked on his movies, and he would fucking throw cameras and wow. break them wow. and, like, thousands of dollars worth of equipment yeah. just smash it. And uh, <laughs> you just think, what an asshole. But he's David Fincher. Yeah, he's made I mean, some of the best. The results do films. kind of speak for themselves. Yeah. The the story I remember about Fincher is uh, on Zodiac, working with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. And you know, by by that point, they're shooting on digital. Uh huh. And, uh, you know, they're they're up in the nineties on the take count. Wow. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, does take number ninety five. Mm-hmm. And Fincher, you know, quietly discreetly turns around to the camera operator, and just says to him, "Okay, delete all those takes." And uh, Jake, let's go again. And, you know, made sure Jake could hear it. Wow. And it's like the last 95 takes are just gone. They're yeah. they're done. You know, everything you've put out there That's a different is, is kind erased. of sadism almost. And, uh, and we're going to start from scratch. So so now let's let's see what you can give me, you know. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think people, I think at least Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, in interviews has, has had that same kind of uh-huh. – you know, I hated his guts, but I'm happy with the movie. So right. what can you say? Yeah. Well, I mean, not a lot of people worked with Kubrick multiple times. Um, I don't know their choice or his choice, probably a little bit of both. But, you know, he and Peter Sellers very famously did not speak mm. like maybe ever again. Yeah. After Strangelove. Yeah. yeah. That was early on. Yeah. You know, there's there's some people like um, uh, from Clockwork Orange. Why am I blanking on his name? McDowell. Yeah. Malcolm McDowell. Uh-huh. Um he was very, very friendly with Kubrick yeah. after the film, although they did also, I think, have a falling out because uh-huh. I think McDowell wanted to do another film with Kubrick and, you know, it, it never happened uh-huh. and, and there was some kind of friction there. Um, there is actually in The Shining, the guy who plays uh, Lloyd, the bartender. Yeah, yeah. He's in Paths of Glory and he's also in The Killing. Oh, God, The Killing is so good. And then like, you know, 20-something years went by and, and suddenly he's back in The Shining. Right. Kubrick did, you know, and then, of course, he, you know, we already talked about Leon Vitale. Uh-huh. But he was so kind of taken with Kubrick after Barry Lyndon yeah. that he just became the guy's, like, personal yeah. assistant for the rest of his life. Yeah, they really, like, uh, he said they had the same work ethic. Yeah. And just sort of same mentality about life. Yeah. And so just bonded. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, th- I think um, – I don't know. It kind of goes both ways with Kubrick. Yeah. Kubrick also he would he would collaborate, um, like Wendy Carlos. You know, he worked with mm-hmm. on both uh, The Shining and, um, gosh, Clockwork Orange. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he did have some collaborators that that were recurring, mm-hmm. but then also, yes, it was sort of that thing of, um, we had this very intense, yeah, nine month experience, yeah. you know, and let's never repeat that. Right. Let's never try to. <laughs> Catch lightning in a ball again, you know. Interesting. Uh, so that very first famous shot of the of them driving in the Beetle on the going to the Sun Road, and and uh, I think it's in Glacier National Park. Mm. Uh, it's just so iconic. Yes. Um, and the one thing I noticed last night that had never occurred to me was the uh, 
the the titles, the chirons on the screen, you know, the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's not really a rhyme or reason no. to them. They're, it's almost humorous yeah, how it's like arbitrary it is. The interview and then like a month later and then like 4 p.m. Yeah. Or Tuesday. Tuesday Wednesday. Or a Thursday. Week later. Yeah. There's no like set pattern to sort of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And it, it makes me kind of wonder why, what was going on there. Yeah. I for don't, such a meticulous guy. Yeah. Like, you know, that's for a reason. Yeah. I, I, that, they, that does baffle me. Other than that, rhythmically, it's really nice when one of them pops up. Yeah. Cause it's like a little bit of a breather. Like a two second. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because oftentimes it'll be, it'll be tied in. Like, for instance, the scene where Danny comes in and he's trying to sneak into the room while Jack is supposed to be sleeping and get yeah. a toy from his room. And Jack's awake and they have this very creepy, you know, conversation about, I want you to have a good time. I would never hurt oh, you. Oh, dude, that scene is so unsettling. Yeah. And uh, and the music is swelling and swelling mm-hmm. and swelling. And then when it gets to that punctuation, that dun, yeah. it like cuts to the black, white title yeah, yeah. on the screen and it kind of sustains for a second and then comes back in. Yeah, so on that scene, the next thing that happens, I think there's a scene in between or something, and then the next thing that happens in real time from where they were mm-hmm. is Danny... Uh, has the marks on his neck. Yes. And his sweater is ripped. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, the Apollo sweater, mm-hmm. uh, you'll appreciate this. Lee Uncrick, the director of Coco and and I think some of the Toy Stories, yeah. he owns that sweater. Oh, my God. Like the real one. Oh. He's a shining nut. I'm and not like, I'm not like a, a movie memorabilia person, <laughs> but either. I would freak out if I saw <laughs> it's that. It's pretty cool. That would that would get to me. I yeah. think Josh actually has a, a sweatshirt version. He does. I've version. seen him. Yeah, yeah, I've seen him wear it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's so good for you, Lee Uncrick. That's what yeah, I say. That's amazing. But um, who, how did, how did, what happened to Danny? What's your take? Yeah, because it's never explained. That's a tough one. Um, it it depends on. I mean, this is what's so fascinating about The Shining, and and it's something that that the novel touches on as well. You can almost read it different way. I mean, of course, you can read it many different ways. Sure. But in terms of whether this stuff is actually happening. Or whether it's all right. happening just internally in somebody's mind of, of uh-huh. somebody who's losing their mind. There's there's another thing that happens in the movie where when uh, Grady walks up and yeah. stumbles into him and spills the avocado yeah, yeah. on uh, <laughs> on his jacket and then takes him into the bathroom. Jack pats him on the back as uh-huh. they're walking in, you and you can see avocado. this handprint of the avocado. <laughs> uh-huh. And then that even continues into the next scene. Yeah. So I mean, obviously that could all still be within Jack's mind, but to me it seems like a deliberate thing Kubrick did. To make it very like material, like yeah. real world, and of course, the the biggest example besides Danny's neck is how does Jack get out of the yeah. uh, the food you out know, of the, the pantry? The, the pantry, yeah, yeah, because um, he has the top. How, how does that door unlock? Yeah, you know? Grady's on the other side. Yeah, and he has the conversation, and that's when it has. Uh, for, for some reason, I mean, it's a very Kubrickian thing, but it it felt like eyes wide shut to me at times in that. Grady and Lloyd, it was almost like this cabal yeah. of ghosts yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. that were all like, because he says, he talks about the we, Grady yes. does. I'm yes. like, we think that you, blah, blah, blah. And like, there's a secret, I'm even getting like chills right now, <laughs> this like cabal of ghosts that are saying, you know, we we killed our families, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Grady for sure. Oh, Grady owns up to it. Yeah. Ultimately, he denies it at first. And then, of course, he says, you know, I corrected his her. daughter tried to burn the Ugh. building down and- you know, I corrected her. Yeah, that's so. And then creepy, when man. you know my wife had a problem with that, yeah, I corrected her. <laughs> oh God, yeah, it's so effective. But um, so Grady's on the other side of the pantry, and they basically said we, we are letting you out essentially. Yeah, and you hear the little uh the little bolt slide mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. So who like how'd that happen? Yeah, yeah. And of course, the picture at the end is the final little yes, piece. Yes, yes. 
July 4th, by the way. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Which plays into, we'll get into yeah, the yeah, yeah. Native American yes. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. oppression. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, so I think you could either look at it as Danny somehow did this to himself. Uh-huh. You know, he's he's having this this vision of this woman mm-hmm. trying to strangle him. But in reality, he has his own hand around his neck or something. Right. Um, or there is something supernatural right. about the hotel, you know. Right. That that's something that Kubrick, you know, in his very kind of distinctly Kubrick weird sensibility talks about in interviews that he thought of The Shining as like an optimistic movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> because to have ghosts implies that there is a beyond. There's yeah. something more than just the physical immediate world uh-huh. and that when you die there's something more. And so any ghost story is inherently optimistic because it suggests Oh, an afterlife of some kind. Like we're not just worm dirt. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, there, and you probably know this, but there was, um, after the first screening, there was a scene that he cut out. Yeah. Where they, in the hospital, they mm-hmm. say that they didn't find his body. Yeah, um, Ullman, I think, comes yeah. to visit them. Which uh, he, he excised from the film. Yeah, after it was in theaters. Yeah. So if you went to see it like that first week, um, so you, you saw, saw that, that scene. scene. And, then, and then if you saw it like the next week, I guess Kubrick sent out in, in instructions to like every theater and every projectionist like uh-huh. cut cut this frame wow. and just let the film end after that. Yeah, I mean it's what what that scene would have implied was they didn't find the body when in fact that very famous last shot frozen mm-hmm. um best smash cut of all time probably. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um so they clearly would have found the body. So that implies that he has been absorbed into the hotel or something back into that picture that photo yeah yeah and there's there's a sort of circularity to it yeah yeah because grady does say you've been the you've care- always been you've the always caretaker. been the caretaker yes. i've always been here too yeah yeah so i mean i love the ambiguity um and i was curious if and and uh halloran you know scatman crothers does mm-hmm. say when he's explaining what the shine is yeah that the the hotel like some he says not only people but some places shine yes and some don't. Yeah. So he implies that this, there is something supernatural going on. Absolutely. Yeah. He can he can have conversations with his grandmother who also had it. Yeah. Entirely in their heads. Um, and but you know for for Halloran, I think he he maybe underestimates a little bit because he says they're just visions. They're just it's like this residue of things right. that have happened before, negative yeah, things right. that have happened. It's like when somebody burns toast and you smell it afterwards. Uh-huh. Like it lingers in the air. And we can see but, that. Yeah, but it's but it's not it's not a threat. You right. Know? Although he does tell him, you know, stay the hell out of room two three seven. Yeah. So and, he does have Danny some understanding that something's up. Something is up and there is something dangerous that you may actually encounter some kind of physical harm maybe. But it, it you know, overall it seems like he's kind of like it's just you're you're more sensitive to these things. Mm-hmm. You can perceive them. You can you can pick up on horrible things that have happened in the past. But they they're not maybe as present as um, as they end up in reality being in the film. Now, was that in the book? Is the shine explained further, or is it? Mm. Do you remember? It's a good question. It's been so long since I've read it. I yeah. mean, as far as I can remember, it's basically the same way in the book. Okay, uh, that. Yeah, but I could be wrong about that. It's I've not read it in many, many years. It's interesting for th- that that's the title, um, because it, I mean it's a part of the film. Yeah, it's not really the. But it's not about the Shining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that the Shining is just kind of like a, a supernatural element. But yeah. I mean, I think Stephen King has talked a lot about how ultimately the book is about like an alcoholic, and it's about yeah, which you know, they scaled back, and it's 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 about a family and an abusive father, uh-huh. and. Um, it's much more, 
you know, it, it, it's like a family drama kind of. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, I think Kubrick leans more on the supernatural element uh-huh. and he underplays the drama just because Jack seems completely out of his gourd from like yeah. frame number one, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you're, it's less that you're seeing – there's like – there's one moment in the film I think where you do see Jack's humanity trying to break through. It's when he has the nightmare about killing Wendy and Danny mm-hmm. and um, and he says it's the most horrible dream he's ever had. Yeah, yeah. And he says, I must be losing my mind and he seems like he's almost on the verge of tears when he says it. Uh-huh. And it does seem like in that scene he is feeling some genuine – remorse and revulsion and it's like the the two sides of him are fighting yeah and part of him realizes that this horrible thing is growing inside of him uh-huh. and and he realizes it and he feels awful about it yeah and he doesn't want it to completely manifest but because he knows i mean in, in that very first scene in the interview allman basically says like yeah. this happened yes and, and this what he's really saying is, this will happen to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. He doesn't present it quite that way. He's yeah. saying sort of like, be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But as an audience member, you're knowing like, dude, he's telling you <laughs> yeah. that you yeah. run a very real risk of axing your family. Yeah, yeah. And like, we'll leave an axe here too. Yeah, 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 right? <laughs> Just yeah. in case. Just in case. <laughs> really interesting scene. Yeah. Um, I guess we should talk about the impossible room real quick too. Yes. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the the... Ullman's office where they shoot the scene has a, a window behind mm-hmm. the desk where there's sunlight coming in. Mm-hmm. And uh, nerds over the years <laughs> have, have charted out, charted out the, the layout yes. of the Overlook Hotel yeah. and are like, that is an interior room. Uh, and it's been dubbed the impossible room. It's, yeah, it's very obvious once you're clued into it because you're looking at him walk down <clears throat> the interior of the front of the hotel mm-hmm. past the check-in desk and so on. And you can see that there's a hallway that just goes – Straight be- behind yeah. Ullman's office, mm-hmm. and then you know you make a, a a little diversion to the left, and you're in Ullman's office, and there's this window back there. And yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, on purpose. Yeah, though. yeah. It has to be on purpose because again, this is why I think so many theories have have you know propagated about this film mm-hmm. um, because something like that would not have gotten past Kubrick. Right. W- would not have you know. There's there's no goofs. You know. Right. It's, it's all deliberate on some level. At least yeah. that's what people, you know, uh, tend to think. Well, it was confirmed. I read one article. And it wasn't the set designer, but it was someone involved in the production, uh, a woman who said, you know, yes, like Stanley uh, wanted a sense of disorientation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I doubt it, if that was retroactive. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. again, a, a, a filmmaker like Kubrick isn't like, oh, shit, was there a continuity mistake there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if there was, then it was there on purpose. We know the thing I was noticing last night, and maybe it's just because uh, of the layout of the hotel, but when you see that helicopter shot of the front of the hotel mm-hmm. in the beginning of the film, there's no hedge maze there. Correct. I don't know. I don't know if maybe the hedge maze is in the back of the hotel, but no, I don't think so. there was no hedge maze yeah, right, in right, real right. life. Yeah, yeah. And so... It's just – it's very strange, you know. He, yeah. I don't think in any of his other films are there that many kind of quote-unquote glaring errors, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, that uh, that just pop up uh-huh. over and over and over again. I mean, uh, like another weird one is when Jack is uh, axing down the door. Mm-hmm. and Which, you know, by the way, 60 doors. Yeah. <laughs> they did that that many times. But it's so strange because, you know, he, he breaks through that first panel. Mm-hmm. He sticks his hand in. She slices it with a knife. Yep. Then it cuts to back outside, uh, you know, Halloran beginning to arrive. Mm-hmm. When it cuts back inside, there's a whole other second panel that's been axed through. Oh. 
And and when it cuts in, you know, to the interior with Shelley Duvall, that, that second panel is gone as well. Right. So you kind of figure, okay, well, did he just like – he just knocked down the second one. We weren't there to see it. Mm-hmm. it. It just has a weird quality to it because something like that you figure would be on screen. Right. That – She's, you know, she's sliced his hand, but he's still going to try to break through uh-huh. until he hears the snowcat outside and then leaves to go kill Halloran. Right. It, it's just very strange. There's there's things like that throughout the film yeah. that, you know, again, like in retrospect, do seem deliberate, but, you know, at, at first glance might seem like continuity errors or something. Yeah. The um, that scene, too, you know, because his name was Jack in the movie, uh, supposedly like during that the one of the 60 different. Yeah takes yeah. that Shelley Duvall was so fucking freaked out yeah. when she's screaming, stop, Jack, stop. Yeah. Like she was talking oh, to Jack Nicholson. Oh, wow, wow. Is what is said. Wow. Is that she was losing it. Well, and, she looks horrified yeah. in that, that where the axe first breaks through the door and she sees what he's got. Well, they didn't tell her yeah. when it was coming, Because her, her eyes are just like, yeah. just it's the most frightened you've ever seen anybody look on film. She is just absolutely <laughs> horrified. So good, man. Yeah. I mean, so her screams effective. in that scene are just haunting. Yeah. yeah. Well, apparently that's why. Yeah. And, oh God, that documentary when you saw Jack getting ready. He's like, shake, he's, he's jumping. Yeah. He's, he's kind of making these and like primal kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because you think about getting up for a scene like yes, that, yeah, and like you can't just walk waltz in and say action, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you have to get physically, you got to be there, upset. yeah, yes. And uh, and then the other thing about that shot is the the great choice and weird choice for the camera. It's like a geared head, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. camera to follow that yeah. axe, yeah. in such an abrupt manner, yeah. Like I'd never seen anything like that. Well, yeah. Do you know? Do you know about this? Like geared heads no, on tripods. Was... So geared head was like the the old school way of operating a camera back when cameras were much heavier. Yeah, you couldn't just necessarily you know turn it with oh, just yeah. like a. They had little wheels. Yes, they had these wheels, uh-huh. and so you have one wheel for like the horizontal axis mm-hmm. and one wheel for the vertical axis. And what's amazing about these is that they can kind of stop on a dime, mm-hmm. and if you're really good with them, moves are kind of repeatable. Yeah, and you can. There's just a quality to the movement that is unlike what you would get with a fluid head that you're just operating with your hand. Right. Because it is so mechanical and uh-huh. so kind of precise. That's pre-motion uh, control. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, today you would probably just program that move. Right. Or, although you couldn't really program it because it has to track just perfectly well, with the axe. Yeah, and motion control is such a big rig, too. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, it does just have this horrible kind of, you know, uh, like omniscient kind of quality yeah. to it, like it's, like an axe, it's glued to the axe, axe you know. Cam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's something that comes up a lot. There's a great uh, video on YouTube. I forget the channel, but uh, they're looking at all of David Fincher's films, uh-huh. and they talk about how the camera often stays glued to people, so that when they sit down, stand up, uh-huh. move left to right in the scene, the, camera's the doing camera so. is just like completely locked onto them. Interesting, and that it, this is ha- partly how Fincher achieves this kind of eerie, almost um, God's eye view of yeah. like everything that's happening in his films. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, since we're on camera, the, um, obviously we got to talk a little bit about uh, Steadicam. Garrett Brown, yeah. Yeah, this was one of the first like five or six movies that used the Steadicam. Yes. And the inventor, Garrett Brown, was the operator yeah. uh, on I think most of those first films. Absolutely, yeah. Like Rocky no one else and... Knew how to use, yeah. um, I'm trying to remember the. Uh, I think Bound for Glory. Bound for was Glory. One. It was like the very maybe the very first one that uses it. And yeah. It has like a it has this really elaborate like where the where the Steadicam steps onto a crane uh-huh. and it like flies through the air yeah, and then the yeah. operator steps back down off the crane and keeps following the action. And, right. Yeah. They, they, these days they call that a drone shot. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. But um, 
I think most like for those first five or six films, maybe the Rocky running up the step scene aside, like probably the most effective use of Steadicam was definitely The Shining. Oh God, yeah. And yeah. I think if I'm not mistaken, they um they call it. I know you know this, but low mode mm-hmm. is when they flip it basically. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The steady low to the cam ground is like you know six inches off the ground, which is like Danny riding his tricycle around. Yeah, the, I yeah. think it's the first time they use low mode, mm-hmm. and they were just figuring out like how to do all this yeah. stuff. It was yeah, yeah, so yeah. inventive and cool. Well, it's like I just I was just watching a Garrett Brown video on YouTube the other day where he's telling the story of like testing out his first really mm-hmm. successful like Steadicam prototype. Yeah. And he actually, he lived in Philadelphia and he and his girlfriend went out to shoot some test footage. I've seen that stuff. And he, yeah. you know, he just happened, they happened to be at the art museum. And yeah. so he filmed her running <laughs> up and so down the cool. steps and like, that's the shot from Rocky. But yeah. like, they were just fooling around. Right. Um, so yeah, there's there's this real sense of like discovery and uh-huh. just like, what can we do with this new tool? Yeah. And um, But it didn't seem like a gimmick. Like, no, no. That's that shot when he's oh, following man. Danny on, yeah. the, on the big wheel or whatever. And not only I know that the visual always gets all the all the press, yeah. but the, the sound, sound yes. of him going the carpet on the, the floor versus the, the hardwood carpet. floor. Oh man, it's that so is good. just the best thing ever. Yeah, especially on headphones. Yes, it's so like striking the contrast between the loud yeah. and silent, and even the the floor has it sounds like a timpani or something. Uh-huh. It sounds like yeah, this yeah. kind of you know. Yeah. Um, and then when he's on the carpet, it's yeah, it's so cool. It's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's like. 50 minutes in before you, like, you get the, the blood wave mm-hmm. from the elevator. Yes. But aside from that, it's like 50 minutes in before you get your first real sort of horror movie shot, which the twins, is yeah. the twins yeah. butchered in the hallway, yeah. uh, which is a long time mm-hmm. for a quote-unquote horror film. I was thinking about this last night. Like, there's so much buildup. So and much buildup. Particularly if, if, you know, if you've seen the film a lot of times— that buildup is important, but it mm-hmm. also does make the film a bit laborious to like yeah. sit through again uh-huh. because you are kind of waiting. For me, it does film like it, it feels like the film definitely like kicks into high gear once kind yeah. of things start going haywire and everything leading up to it. I mean, yeah, you just think like if that film were made today by somebody who's not Kubrick, mm-hmm. the notes from the studio, like, oh my god, oh my god, like you make, had to kill make something happen. In the first yeah, five yeah, yeah, exactly, like. There's no way you could get away with yeah. that much build until you know stuff what it, starts happening. What it probably would that if that film were made today, it would probably start with a flashback of great the first Grady murders. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it would show that in all like yeah. lurid detail. Right, right, right. But it's so much more effective to get because even when it shows the girls murdered, it's just really quick little blinks. Mm-hmm. Um and, and then like that's all you're getting. That that image too is just like you you know, if you if you like freeze frame on it. Like yeah. just like the care that's been taken to like the art direction of like where the blood is splattered uh-huh. and how they're placed within the frame. Yeah. It's like it has the quality of like a photograph or like mm-hmm. an art installation or something. It's like it it's it's I mean it is messy, but it's not messy the way an actual murder scene would probably be. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like all arranged perfectly yeah. for the camera. That's very symmetrical, <laughs> very nicely messy. composed, you know. Um It's Kubrick messy. Yeah, it just has this like incredibly uncanny feeling to it yeah. the way the way it's all laid out yeah yeah and he of course goes full on like uh of course Sam Raimi was after but like Sam Raimi horror yeah with uh room 237 yes. when when Jack finally goes in there yeah and that whole sequence where i mean that's kind of the only only part in the movie where it goes full horror like that mm-hmm. i mean i get i mean the last 30 minutes of course with the axe is terrifying well there's you know there's like the the silly kind of stuff where like 
it's the it's the ballroom full of skeletons. Yeah. And uh, some of that stuff feels a little bit, I don't know, like, I feel like that's some of the weaker stuff in the movie, maybe. Yeah. Where it's kind of, it just feel like he's he's the, the kitchen sink kind of portion of the movie. Sure. Where it's like every horror trope, every kind of like, yeah. you know, but he, I mean, he does have the brilliant, uh, the dog man costume. It's just oh yeah 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 very very unsettling and strange and yeah. disorienting when you see that well yeah what is that all about well they they talk about it more in the book uh-huh. that you know it, it's these you know it's two men uh-huh. and um and it's they have sort of like a they're it's furries like a, right yeah 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 they're kind of proto furries <laughs> or something like it's a fetish uh-huh. for them yeah and uh, I think there's a, there's a very creepy scene in the novel I still remember this where Danny's at the top of a staircase mm-hmm. and the dog man is like at the bottom of the staircase and he's kind of yeah. hurling these threats at him but he doesn't come up the stairs but um, I don't so, know if that shot was in the version I saw last night really it goes by so quickly it's when Wendy is um, she's running around and um, I remember it on the plane yeah yeah I might have been typing something. Yeah, it goes by really quickly. It's just like one of the quick cuts when it's going back and forth between Jack chasing Danny and, yeah, yeah. and Wendy kind of like, she sees the bloody elevator. Oh, yeah. She sees the uh, the guy with his uh, cut down the middle of his head saying, yep. great party, isn't it? Uh-huh. She sees the uh, the ballroom full of, uh, of the skeletons yeah. with the cobwebs. It's full on horror at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's... And that lasts like thirty minutes. It's just like oh, it's it's relentless, yeah. relentless. Yeah, and the pacing. Uh, and I was I made a note too, just about the pacing of the film in general. It is, I guess, like uh, I hate to call it slow because that sounds like a, a a knock on it. Yeah, but it's very deliberate. It is, and how it's paced. Yeah, and I, I think kind of perfectly paced yes. and how it plays out the yeah. madness and builds up to that batshit yeah. third act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it works better because there is so much build to it, for sure. So before we get off of it, the the Steadicam as well, I mean, it, I feel like The Shining has had such a lasting visual mm-hmm. influence on so much cinema that's come after it. If you think about films that have come out in recent years, something like The Witch, for instance, mm-hmm. has a lot of kind of Kubrickisms in it, mm-hmm. these slow creep-ins. Um, yeah. Maybe not so much Steadicam on that film, but definitely where you kind of have these wide angle shots mm-hmm. that push in very very slowly yeah, while very the music is swelling. Framed. Yeah, the kind of symmetrical framing. Um if you think about a film, did you see uh The Killing of a Sacred Deer? Oh, uh, not yet. Yeah, that I that that great. movie is like just you know, full of again these kind of Kubrick uh-huh. uh visual touches. It it almost feels like an homage to Kubrick or something. The way I think he is one of the more oft homaged yeah, directors. Yeah, absolutely he is. Um it's interesting too because I feel like partly Kubrick is a little bit easier to imitate for people mm-hmm. because it's it is possible to set up these symmetrical shots. It is possible to kind of do these like slow, slow creeping zooms and so on. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that is in the wheelhouse of most filmmakers to, yeah. to achieve. And yet the way that Kubrick deploys it, his control, his you like his sense of when to use that and yeah. when to not use it, and so on. Yeah, to like build the atmosphere, to build the tension. Well, it's interesting because he uh, the the shot where it shows Scatman or Dick o, uh, Dick Halloran. Yeah, I almost yeah. said O'Halloran. He's Irish. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dick Halloran is in his uh, I guess house or apartment in Florida. Oh yeah, the, the the two zoom outs with the, the yeah, yeah yeah. It could have been by all accounts should have been just. 
a shot of him in his apartment watching the news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it starts, as you know, hard on the television yep, yep. and pulls back so slowly from the TV to reveal to reveal his feet. In the, the nude portrait. The nude portrait over <laughs> yeah. the TV. Yeah. Then the reverse of that. With, with the same. The other nude portrait yeah, yeah, above yeah. his bed. Yeah. Uh, and there was no, like, when you said when to deploy it, like, I wonder why there. I think, it's, I think it's because it's it's starting to dawn on him. Like, he's just, he's he's on vacation. He's on holiday. He's, mm-hmm. he's having a good time. He's in his own world. Yeah. And it's, it's like the beginning of that feeling stirring in him that. Yeah. He's getting a sense that something is wrong. Something he, he's having that premonition kind so of. So that's why he just played it with a creepy sort I of. I think so. Yeah, pullback. yeah, yeah. I think to give it this this sense of dread and yeah. you don't even understand really why it's happening, but it is making you uneasy in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, Halloran's uh, Halloran's call to action sort of directly mirrors the ramping up of what's going on in the hotel. Mm-hmm. Like when he first gets that, like, oh shit. I got to go get on a plane. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because he's getting Danny's messages. Yeah. Like that is when the mo- – that, that's when the story really starts to kind of shift into third or fourth gear. Yeah. I feel like. Well, it's like uh, I was thinking about, you know, those, those zoom out shots. There's a very similar one that happens with Danny when he's playing with his toys on that orange carpet. Yeah. And it starts very close up on Danny and that ball rolls into shot mm-hmm. and the camera very slowly zooms back out again. Yeah. It's like Kubrick, I mean, he he used that shot on many, many of his films where yeah. he would start in like an extreme close-up mm-hmm. and then zoom back out so you see the like the entire world yeah. around the character. I feel like that that's just like his way of underlining something, mm-hmm. of kind of cueing you as a viewer like, hey, pay attention. Right. Something's about to happen. Yeah. You know, we're 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 going, we're shifting into another gear. Uh-huh. You need to really pay close attention because it's about to get, you know, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his use of lighting too. Um, oh and we'll, man, we'll get into this with eyes wide shut for yeah, sure. But yeah. he was very famous for. I mean, he obviously used movie camera lights, but his he, use of practicals, though. Yeah, but he incredible. really used practicals, yes. and uh, it creates this like. It just creates a mood. Like uh, the this, the bar scene is the one that specifically comes to mind mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when he first meets Lloyd. And the 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 bar, all that white light is just blown out. Yes, and it feels, and it probably is. It feels like that's what's really lighting them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's so strongly backlit mm-hmm. on that on that angle of Lloyd. Um, yeah, I was watching it on my TV last night. I have this uh, LG OLED TV. Yeah, Are you familiar with this? Where I've heard about it. That's it, it like basically the has top dog like right now. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah, and. Um, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole about all that, but but basically, just <laughs> it can it can pump out a lot of light. Uh-huh. It's way brighter than your average like LED display or whatever, uh-huh. and um, and so you get the you get the contrast between the really bright parts of the frame and the yeah. really dark parts of the frame because the individual pixels are are completely independent of each other. Mm-hmm. So you can have a full brightness pixel next to a full complete one hundred percent black pixel, right? Without any bleed over, yeah, man, and so it, yeah, it it almost like hurts to look at those shots, uh-huh. like uh, like you know Lloyd by the bar, right, or like the the red bathroom with Grady. Oh god, that um, set is so beautiful. Yeah, it just it just kind of it 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 draws you into the film that much more, and you become conscious of all these things Kubrick is doing that are not quote unquote traditionally good cinematography, right, um, but are of course gorgeous and yeah. absolutely you know stunning. Yeah, yeah. That uh, um, by the way, that carpet, um, you know, we're we're renovating our house right now, <laughs> and I'm finally getting a, a 
home office all to myself. Oh, yeah. I'm wallpapering one of the walls with that oh, because uh, yeah. this company in England makes it. It's not those colors, yeah. which makes me really sad. Yeah. But it's the same uh, pattern. Same pattern. Everything. Kind of honeycomb. Huh? Thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would might. In those colors, it might be a little too much for a wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, that's well, they, the dream. They do say, you know, like certain colors, <laughs> don't paint your room those colors or it'll yeah. be, have a bad effect on you. I yeah. do like those colors, though. It's kind of like that brown and burnt orange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red. has a very 70s kind of yeah. quality to it. Uh, and the other carpet, and I know this is getting so like <laughs> in the weeds, but uh, that carpet and then the carpet, the green and black carpet in the, uh, is it 237? 237, yeah. yeah it's very psychedelic, cool like yeah, very trippy. Very cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was looking at it last night too. I was thinking about this, like when when I watch The Shining now, because I've seen it so many times, uh-huh. it's very difficult for me to watch it just as a movie. Yeah. Like I, I, I really do miss being able to just look at it and take it in sure. as if it were a movie instead of noticing the carpet, instead of <laughs> noticing like, ooh, there's a lamp in the background. He's letting it blow out or like whatever, you know? Yeah, but you've seen it so many times. I know, it's yeah. It's kind of cool to do that. It is cool, too. you notice something new each time. But it's almost like flipping through like a photography book or something. Right. Or like, you know, just, just like looking at like a gallery piece or something. Yeah. Like it, it, it ha- I'm, I'm way more keyed into like... The cinematography, uh-huh. the the production design, yeah, yeah, just how 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 brilliant and how singular and how like he he just has this knack for creating these images that mm-hmm. just sear themselves into your brain and are like instantly recognizable, like yeah. like the wallpaper you're gonna like. There's just it just you know it, it really like gets down to like the core of something very like uh-huh. primitive almost that yeah. that is just like it leaves an impression and you don't even understand why it's almost subconscious somehow. Yeah, and he can set a mood with a. F- a picture uh, and a score and a sound like no one else. Yeah. You know, Um, I was trying to watch it last night because I've seen it so many times and I've fallen to that same trap as you do of trying, of thinking Kubrick, Kubrick, let me look (laughs) at everything. Let me look at the composition, 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 lighting, lighting, lighting. Um, I tried to really key in on the acting Mm -hmm. and the performances more than I had before. Yeah. And that's where Shelley Duvall really just sort of floored me. Yes. Uh, And Scatman Crothers. Mm Mm-hmm. That scene with he and Danny is really fucking great. When, the when the they, kitchen talk and all yeah, that. Man, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah. Especially from a kid because mm-hmm. kid actors are notoriously bad Yeah, uh, and too acty. Yes. Um, yeah, Danny is supernatural, so supernatural, not yeah. supernatural. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's a one of a kind yeah. kind of – yeah, I mean just a perfect, perfect kid for that part. Uh, there's, a, there's one bit I'll read you here um, about – Scatman Crothers, um, and this is from Leon Vitale again. He said, you take someone like Scatman Crothers in The Shining, that scene in the kitchen with Danny, the whole monologue that he does, he sort of fluffed his lines because Stanley wanted him to do it in just one take. Mm. He was 68 years old at this time, so, you know, it wasn't surprising that it became difficult for him. Uh, We got quite high up in the takes, uh, I would say, so the assistant directors were saying we should send him home because he's starting to feel terrible. Yeah, And Stanley said no. This is so brilliant. He said, no, he'll feel even more terrible if he goes home and understands that we started something and he wasn't able to finish it. Wow. And I was like, man, that is like he saw beyond like this Mm -hmm. old man is like literally sort of physically failing. Yeah. But he would feel even worse if he went home knowing he didn't get it. That's real empathy there. That's a real understanding of human psychology and. Totally, man. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, so we kept him there and we did dozens and dozens more takes. I think when you look at the finished movie, Scatman had these little inflections and moments where you think he's Lawrence Olivier. Mm-hmm. And it was so natural and beautifully done and timed 
uh, but some actors with Stanley could never get past that. Yeah. Um, it, it was, you had to really like bring your A game. Yeah. You know? That's so a- funny, not too. Not just like as an actor, but endurance wise. Yeah. You know? Well, it's so funny, too, just the idea of like starting something and not finishing it, because that's also what Jack is so worried about. Like, yeah. You know, when he's making that big speech to uh, Wendy and he's talking about, I signed a contract, you right. know, an agreement between me and my employer. And yeah. I have responsibilities. And yeah, that was have a, you ever had a responsibility in your whole life? You oh, know? he's so demeaning to yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. My one kind of knock on the movie that I noticed last night that I'd, I guess it always sort of bothered me that I never quite knew what it was is I don't believe that they were married or ever in love. They don't like, seem to have like a relationship. No, yeah. they don't seem to have any connection. Yeah. And maybe that's the point is they're yeah. – they're past that, but yeah. like, uh, yeah, they're just they're just staying together for the kid kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, and Jack is there is no arc, you know. He's he's just he's, sort of he's Jack that from, from the, the beginning, beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, from the outshot, yeah. which I love. I've talked about Jack before with, with the Chinatown one, but he's he's one of those rare actors that can disappear in a role, but also still be Jack. Yes, like there's that Jackness through absolutely, all of his absolutely. roles, absolutely, yeah, which is a bit of a magic trick, I think. There is that one moment. I think the only glimpse you get of them having any kind of relationship is when he calls her from the hotel after he's gotten the job and he's saying mm-hmm. he's going to be home later. Yeah. And there's like a casual way where he's like, hey, babe, you know. Yeah. Where, you know, it's a little term of endearment. It's but it l- stands out. Yeah, so it does like, stand out because it's like the only yeah. time there's any like evidence of affection whatsoever <laughs> between them. So weird. And maybe, maybe when, uh, well, but it, no, I, I was going to say when uh, he's introducing her to Halloran and he calls her Winifred. Oh, um, right, right. Which is just, that's a weird thing anyway. Like, I, I don't know why that was in the movie or like yeah. why that. Well, is Wendy short for Winifred? Yeah, yeah. Maybe? I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I've never heard that. Like, The Shining is the only place I've ever heard of Winifred before. Yeah. Um, But it's just, you know. It's, but it's a pet name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a pet name. So it does suggest in some way, the yeah. same way they call Danny Doc or something. Right, yeah. right. And uh, God, I love that scene too. When Scatman Crothers is like, well, maybe I just heard you call him. Yeah, Doc. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's such a beloved character in this movie. Yeah, and it's so painful. Like <sighs> th- that makes it so painful when yes. he gets the axe. Well, it's so. I mean, there's something very darkly humorous about showing him step by step through yeah. this lengthy journey that he goes oh, through. Oh my god, the plane on the airplane, the... <laughs> renting the snowcat, going <laughs> yeah. up the mountain, going uh-huh. past the car crash. You know, and then just boom, and then walking slowly <laughs> throughout the hotel. Hello, is anybody here? And then, yeah, and all just to get axed, like, immediately. Yeah. Just unceremoniously <laughs> taken out by Jack, yeah. Um, another scene that really jumped out at me last night uh, that I always loved but I didn't know why is the gold room scene when it's in full swing. Yes. Um, and great, I think, great production design, Well, you know? Yeah, and, like, I always appreciate it for just the visual of, like, pulling off all those extras and, mm-hmm. and it looks so great. Costumes and, yeah. But I think it hit me last night that, like, the audience, like, it was almost a relief to see more people. Yeah, 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 yeah. you're starting to lose it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the effect of the film that intended, I think, is that you're in this place with them. You see the, the and, seductive quality this has on Jack, yes. that it would be very, very easy to kind of sure. give in to this kind and not question it and not be freaked out by it. Yeah. But just be like, like you said, relieved. Like you want to see someone else in that yeah. goddamn hotel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you see it in, its, in all its full glory yeah. and all these people like dancing and, you know, whining and dining. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, thank you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm just glad to see someone else yes. on the screen. Just like a little bit of breathing. Because Lloyd and Grady yeah. do not offer any no. comfort there. No. Um, um, like those are characters that exist only in Stanley Kubrick films. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like They're very Kubrickian, creepy you know, old constructs. Yeah, yeah. 
Kubrickian constructs. Yeah. It's a good band name. <laughs> um, did you see the uh, Did you see Room 237? Yes. Doc, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your take on that? Making fun of those people? Yeah. That was kind of the point of the movie, it right? It did seem like that. Yeah, it did seem like kind of um, like the director was mocking for the most part yeah. these people. It's been a while since I've seen it. I saw it whenever when it was first released. So it's not super fresh in my mind. Yeah, I didn't see it again. Um, but I do remember, I mean, obviously some of that stuff is kind of silly, I think. Like mm-hmm. the the moon landing. Right. Kubrick is guilty sure. for having faked it. That's why Danny's wearing the Apollo 11 shirt. And, yeah. You know, the the overlook is like a metaphor for Kubrick's agreement with the U.S. government. Yeah, to, come on. That That's bogus <laughs> to me. Um, the, the whole like Minotaur theory yeah. where like the, one of the main supports is that the ski poster kind of looks like a Minotaur. Uh, come on. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't really buy into that, but I will say, and I was familiar with this, with this reading of the film before that documentary came out, uh-huh. but the, the Native American genocide angle. Yeah. So let's give everyone a quick summation of what this is all about. Yeah. So there's this article from, I want to say the eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, obviously from the 80s because that's the film came out in 1980, but um, called The Family of Man, mm-hmm. where he talks about the Overlook Hotel as standing in, in a way, for the United States. Mm-hmm. And if you start to look for red, white, and blue, mm-hmm. those three colors in the film, it's all over the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Once you know to look for it, you'll notice it's how Wendy is dressed, it's how Danny is dressed. Um, when he's in the meeting at the office, there's a little American flag mm-hmm. and like a, a coffee cup on the table. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's there's just this kind of like Americana color, like yeah. quite, quite um, prominent in, in the beginning of the film. Um, there's also numerous references that Ullman makes about having to repel Indian attacks and mm-hmm. it's built on an Indian burial ground. Right. Like he flat out says it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. he talks about it when when they're giving the tour. Um, and so there's also this, this famous kind of, um, interpretation of the shot where, uh, it's Halloran and he's giving the tour of the pantry Mm -hmm. and behind Halloran, uh, you know, very prominent in shot is this Calumet, like baking, baking powder, baking powder can, uh, with like a native American kind of profile, Mm -hmm. uh, with like traditional headdress and stuff. Yep. And it's in profile, and it's kind of in exact profile with Halloran himself. Mm-hmm. And so if you buy into this theory that the Overlook Hotel is United States in some way, and that, you know, when Halloran says things like, a lot of good things happened here, but a lot of bad things happened too. Right. When when uh, Ullman says, it's it's still hard to believe it happened here, but it did, mm-hmm. you know. Um, th- I think there's, there's a real sense that, like, you know, the, the film at a deeper level is talking about things happen in history and they are in the past, mm-hmm. but they are also somehow still present with us today. Yeah. And that events have kind of like burnt toast. Mm-hmm. It has like, it lingers for a long time yeah. when these terrible things happen, when atrocities are committed, not just in the more literal sense, mm-hmm. in the lives of the people directly affected and the survivors and so on, but it just, it's, history has echoes and it continues into the present and it mm-hmm. continues to, so the shining in a way, the shining is a way of, it's like a metaphor for history. It's like a metaphor for mm-hmm. looking into the past and understanding that what, you know, where you're standing now, how, how it got to be that way. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of blood there 
and that if you were able to experience it more directly or see it more directly, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the twins or something, Mm -hmm. it would be this incredibly upsetting thing. Um, So I was talking about the the, the Calumet can in Halloran. You know, the the suggestion has been that Halloran is in profile, the Calumet can with the Indian is in profile. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is sort of drawing parallels, again, between the African-American experience in the United States. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and, and you know, of course, the one of the pieces of music that Kubrick uses in the film that's that's very distinct is this uh, Christoph Ponderewski uh, piece called "Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima." Oh wow! So I mean, you have yeah <laughs> again, it's something horrible that happened, uh-huh. and um, you know, uh, Kubrick later on wanted to make a film about the Holocaust. Uh-huh. Um, he was somebody that was you know, deeply interested in that for a very long time yeah. and, and sort of Kubrick, you know, like you could also say like a clockwork orange. Uh-huh. He's asking these questions about what is human nature? Right. What does it mean to be good? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to have free will? Yeah. Um, he, he's asking these very, very deep fundamental questions about like, is mankind on the balance a force for good or a force for bad in the world? Mm-hmm. And I think these, I think these kind of themes resonate, um, Within, you know, The Shining. So do you think, I mean, this is one of those things, it's like every piece of art ever, like, is it author intended? Yeah. Or is it just one of these things where, I think you can read into and make it your own metaphor. Yeah. But like, do you think Kubrick was doing that? Do you think it's a metaphor for the Native American genocide? Yeah. I mean, Native Americans... In in particular, and then just America in general. Mm-hmm. And then I think you can also say, because, for instance, it, it is very um, very prominent that Grady seems to be, like, British, yeah. you know? And uh, and there's this scene that, that, with every passing year, is, is all the more uh, noticeable and kind of stands out and is very, very, um, I don't know, just... Um, it, 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 it's bothersome. It's it's upsetting when they're in that red bathroom. When he uses the N word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also uh, when Jack is talking about Wendy, and he mm-hmm. refers to her as the old sperm bank upstairs. Yeah. Um, like I said, I mean, I'm I'm sure those those lines didn't land particularly well in 1980, but in 2018, sure. it's like holy shit. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, it, I I don't think Kubrick included those in, in in a casual way whatsoever. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's something very, very deliberate he's doing there. Uh-huh. And, you know, Grady being from England is a way of sort of tying the atrocities that happened here in the United States uh-huh. with, you know, the history of Europe yeah. and colonialism and the British Empire and, and all of that too. Yeah. So so he's I think he really is tapping into something that runs deep in in the history of of mankind. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I, I just don't think Kubrick would casually decide to make like a horror film and just right. leave it at face value like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like I was saying about, you know, his his thoughts on ghost stories being inherently like optimistic in a way. Mm-hmm. He's somebody that thought very, very deeply about what he was doing. Yeah. And he's somebody that loved to have layer upon layer upon layer of subtext yeah. in all his films. So I think, so, you know, that scene in the in the red bathroom 
like I said, once you're looking for red, white, and blue in the production design, yeah. especially in the beginning of the film, and then also all the Native American kind of sure, symbology everywhere. throughout the hotel, mm-hmm. you know, even even at the level of like when we see Jack throwing the ball against the wall, uh-huh. he's, he's he's throwing, throwing it, it against this this yeah. Native American like yeah. you know uh, art piece that's hanging on the wall. Yeah, um, very angrily. Yeah, yeah, I think there's I think there's very much something to it, and also I want to say. Uh, the ending of the film mm-hmm. in the in the uh, in the hedge maze. Yeah, when Danny retraces his footsteps backwards. So great. That great I moment. believe I've read is something that you know Native Americans would do. It's it's like an old kind of trick. And if you think also of uh, the idea of like history, mm-hmm. when Jack is running after Danny and he's saying, you know. Danny, I'm right behind you. Yeah. You can't get away from me. Yeah. It's like history is is right. pursuing us and we can't escape it. Oh. But the way Danny does ultimately escape it is to retrace his footsteps. Mm-hmm. That is to say to kind of acknowledge the history mm-hmm. and to actually reverse that trend, to double back on itself, to yeah. not just continue unawares, you know, into the present. He's able to kind of... Re- well, because that will only lead to your own destruction. Yeah, yeah. So he's able to actually kind of break that... that circular yeah. kind of eternal recurrence kind of thing yeah. and to chart like a new pathway out of that maze. Wow. You know, and again, the the hedge maze is something that Kubrick introduced into the film that was not in the novel. So Yeah. And it's a, it's not a hedge maze by accident. Yeah. And not just cuz like, oh, this will be cool cuz they can get lost in and like there was a deeper meaning there, I think. And there's this is, you know, maybe this is reading like way too much into things, but I I noticed this for the first time last night. When Jack is at the interview in the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. he's wearing a green tie. Yeah. And maybe just because of the better resolution on the Blu-ray and so on and seeing it on like a larger size screen, uh-huh. if you look at that tie, it's not like a solid green tie. Uh-huh. It's a tie with like all these ridges and divots and stuff. Yeah, and it looks a, very a, much like the hedge maze it's in a, a way. It's a tie. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It has this kind of like winding right. pattern to it, which I, again, <laughs> I do not think because it's Kubrick, I don't think that's by accident. Right. Man. So. Dude. You know. Did we do it, Casey? Wow, I guess so. I guess we did it. Yeah, there's there's still like a million things to talk about, but I know. But, uh, you know, fortunately, we'll we'll have other Kubricky episodes. I guess Kubricky. Yeah. The entire first season of This Time Tomorrow is available now to binge from start to finish. In this new iHeart series presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Osvaloshin, and Kara Price as we explore the exciting possibilities of the next generation of connectivity. From smart cities to future farms, you'll find out just how much could change with future 5G networks. Listen to This Time Tomorrow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I got a couple of more things on Kubrick here. Sure. So I looked up some of the um, things that people had to say about him that that worked with him. Uh, this sure. Is, this is from Jack uh, Jack Nicholson. He said the guy was meticulous. I mean, he just had an impe- impeccable eye for detail. I remember one time we were walking back to the set after lunch, and he saw a slug laying on the ground. Suddenly, Stanley picks this thing up and shakes his head and said, "This should be in Boston." He says, <laughs> and he gets some intern to take this slug to Boston. <laughs> And put it on a patch of grass on the common. Wow. He thought it looked better there, and he was right. The slug looked better in Boston. Wow. Like, is that true? That sounds like something Jack That's might make. That's pretty, yeah, that, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really 50-50 on that one. Uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, during Full Metal Jacket, he said uh, when they were doing, I think he says that scene 
So the only thing I can think of is maybe the the confrontation with yeah, Arlie Ermey. shooting you know? Arlie Ermey, yeah. But he said that he came back to him between each take and was telling him that the president was shot and that he came back up to the second take and he was like, he, he actually was shot two or three times and he, the story just got worse and worse and he said, my acting got better and better huh. and he was just totally fucking with him. Yeah, I was trying to. to like, I was trying to remember it. when did uh, Hinckley shoot Reagan? Like, what was that when he was no, filming Full Metal Jacket? Was, or? This is a, I don't yeah. know who the president would have been. Well, would, yeah, Full Metal Jacket would have been the '80s and Reagan. And Reagan did have an assassination attempt, but I don't remember what year that happened. If that was pretty amazing, if those two things coincided because they also Arlie Ermey even has that line about uh, Marines infamous assassination attempt. Oh, you that's know? right. Yeah. Uh, when he's yeah. lauding the shooting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, the well, Kennedy, uh, uh, yeah. What's his, um, Oswald. Yeah, who's and, the guy who shot Kennedy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then finally, Vitaly again, his old pal, talking about um, the, the sound. He said Stanley only used stereo sound on two films, 2001 and Eyes Wide Shut. The others were all in mono. Mm-hmm. And when asked why a noted innovator resisted mixing in stereo, he explained. We used to send people to all the key cities to check the projection. Yes. And what they found was nearly all the sound systems hadn't been looked at for years or even decades. Often one or more channels weren't working. So Stanley decided it was better to record it in mono and mix it meticulously there. Mm -hmm. So the sound, even in theaters where the speakers weren't working right, would sound correct. Yeah. Fucking A, man. Kubrick was, yeah, and and on the same kind of uh, level, he would send out he had like an army of people that would go out to different theaters that were playing his films yeah, and they would go to see other movies in the, in the same theater uh-huh. and just measure like the brightness of the bulb and the projector and the screen and make yeah. sure like, I know Scorsese it was, it was always snuff. nuts about the, the bulb quality. Well, like it's, it's like, um, cause uh, it's often wrong. Yeah. 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 And like, uh, Scorsese and like last waltz, he has that card up at the front and says this film is made to be played loud. Yes. Um, but yeah, Kubrick would, um, he he was very very. There were often instructions sent along with the films to projectionist. You know, yeah. Please do it exactly this way. Yeah. And, and if we find you, you know, projecting the film poorly, we're yeah. gonna pull it from your cinema and, and all that. Well, I mean, I've made short films back in the day, and we used to have little guerrilla screenings all around Atlanta and yeah. warehouses and stuff. And there's nothing. And you've done this, mm-hmm. I'm sure. There's nothing more frustrating oh, than God. Bad sound or bad picture Horrible. when you put all this work into something yeah. and you only have this one chance mm-hmm. to show your little four-minute yep, film yep. and someone fucks it up and it's oh, just it's like, the worst. God, my heart starts beating. I start sweating. It's terrible. It's the worst. When you're when you're in that screening situation and you realize something's wrong yeah, and you're man. powerless to fix it because like the train has left the station, you know? <laughs> and imagine being Kubrick in that yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, man. This, this, this leads me to a quick digression. Just that Kubrick's last three films, those being The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut, he famously, well, famously to Kubrick nerds, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> shot with, uh, you know, he shot with widescreen theatrical projection in mind, mm-hmm. but he protected for full frame video presentation. So if you bought, you know, The Shining on DVD oh, or yeah. VHS back in the day, uh-huh. before widescreen TVs were a popular thing. Yeah. Uh, you would see the full frame exposed negative yeah, for The yeah. Shining, which is to say, if you look at the widescreen version of The Shining, there's mm-hmm. more information on the top and the bottom right. that you would see on the initial VHS or DVD release of the film. Mm-hmm. Then by the time they got around to kind of like doing the more recent HD remasters, yeah. they switched back over to 16 by 9 because by now, most TVs you yeah. look at are going to have that, that widescreen presentation. Uh-huh. But for me growing up, 
I saw The Shining mostly on VHS for a long time, mm-hmm. and then the first DVD that came out. So I'm really used to seeing the film in full frame. Mm-hmm. And I, there's there's a little bit of a, a of a recurrence these days of full frame in certain filmmakers, like uh, somebody like Gus Van Sant, for instance, yeah. was using full frame for his trilogy on death, uh, Jerry... Uh, Elephant and mm. Last Days. Elephant in particular has a lot of oh, yeah. visual similarities to The Shining. Yeah. It even has kind of like a Halloran-like character. This uh-huh. kid, I think his name is like Benny or something, who uh, is sort of the Halloran. He he wanders back into the school during the shooting yeah. and the camera tracks behind him for a long time. Yeah, with and, that steady cam. And then as soon as he encounters one of the kids, they shoot him dead like immediately. Yeah. Um, but th- there's something very interesting about seeing these full-frame images of these Kubrick films, Mm -hmm. where again, by protecting, he's making sure there's no boom in the shot. There's no track visible on the floor. Right. Things that filmmakers might leave in because they know there's going to be a crop later on. Yeah. Um, There's something really, really compelling about that. And in a way, I wish those versions of the films were still a little bit more widely available Mm. to watch because there's something about leaving that extra space around the character in the frame that makes the character a little bit more part of their environment mm-hmm. and a little bit less shot tightly just on them, Yeah, that it, it adds to the sense of unease. It adds to the sense of them being kind of trapped within these symmetrical compositions. Mm-hmm. Kubrick over and over does these things where the shot has like a very clear vanishing point in dead center of the frame. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and again, the symmetry... It's all kind of there's there's a feeling of like inevitability, yeah, and like you're being trapped, and that these characters are just kind of playing out the hand they've been dealt, but mm-hmm. they're not necessarily free to change things, right? And uh, yeah, and, and the full frame presentation of those films, you know, for for anybody that's really interested in Kubrick, I would I would seek those out, get the old DVD copy and check yeah. it out. It obviously he did intend it to be seen theatrically in the widescreen, and that mm-hmm. is probably the historical definitive version of the film, Mm -hmm. but the full frame versions are very, very interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Dude, this is everything I thought it would be, Casey. I'm glad. This is great. All right, we'll finish up. uh, I didn't pull an Ebert quote, but he did give the movie four stars, uh, but his review was uh, nothing really jumped out. It's yeah, like I was super quotable. I saw one that he had written in like 2006 or something. Yeah. It was like a retrospective, uh-huh. like maybe it was part of his great movie series or something. Yeah, I don't think he reviewed it at the time. That's strange. It is strange. How would he not review a new Kubrick film in 1980? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um but we'll finish with five questions in this edition. Sure. Uh cuz I want to give you full full uh shrift. Sure, sure. Can you say full shrift? I only hear opposite, short opposite of short yeah <laughs> uh, what's the first movie you remember seeing in the theater Casey so I have a good story about this so the first movie I can really remember seeing was License to Kill mm. the James Bond film sure. came out in 1989 yeah I would have been five just about to turn six Ugh, so young and uh, my parents took me to see it in the theater probably like a Friday night uh-huh. and I, I think I had seen some other James Bond films, and they assumed this would be on a similar level, mm-hmm. violence-wise, content-wise. And there's a scene where a guy gets fed to a shark mm-hmm. that I, I haven't rewatched it. I don't know if it's particularly bloody or gory or upsetting. But for whatever reason, when we were sitting there in the theater, they thought it was a little bit too much for me. Yeah. And so my dad stayed to watch the rest of License to Kill. Mm-hmm. My mom and I walked out of the theater 
walked across the aisle and walked into something called Weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> which was obviously yeah. a, a, a wonderful thing to uh-huh. see at that age. And I, I greatly enjoyed that movie. Um, so your first movie was both License yeah, yeah, to yeah. Kill Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like the first <laughs> 15 minutes of License to Kill transitioning into Weekend at Bernie's, yeah. License to Kill Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first R-rated movie you saw? What that was? Well, you know, I had, like I said, I had that friend who had access to like all sure. the 80s R-rated stuff. I remember the first one I saw in a theater that my parents again took me and my friend Ben to see was Get Shorty. Oh man, so and, great. And uh, yeah, that was wonderful. And I, I think I think to this day it, it might hold the record for the most dense amount of F-words. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's right up there with like Casino and, and, yeah. and some of the other heavy hitters, Big Lebowski too probably. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, will you walk out of a bad movie? No. I uh that didn't surprise me. I no, if I'm if I'm there to see something, I will just commit to it. Yeah. And I rarely find myself uh in in a position of watching something I really do not like. Yeah. It it rarely happens because I just have a very good sense at this point of sure. what I'm going to be into, what I'm not going to be into. Yep. So it's only in kind of like social situations where I'm with like a bunch of other people. That dragged you to some piece of yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. And I end up seeing something that I'm not into. And th- that can be unpleasant, but I'm I'm not the type to walk out, no. All right. Uh, I tailor this one to the guest. Uh, and I have something here, but I'm going to change it on the fly. Uh, who's your favorite filmmaker? Oh, geez. <laughs> I think everybody he's sweating he just broke out in a cold sweat yeah <laughs> I think I think probably is Jean-Luc Godard at this okay. point I think I've spent the most time watching his films mm-hmm. reading his interviews reading people writing about him he's he's introduced me to so many philosophers and writers and other filmmakers yeah thinkers I mean he, his filmography and his his whole project is so deep and so just there's yeah. so much there that it, it it's like a lifetime project to right. to go through his films. There's just so much there. More than a filmmaker. He's more than a filmmaker, absolutely. He's yeah. he's just like a, a a complete artist. He's a visual artist, he's a he's a thinker. He he has a tremendous uh influence in some ways on the use of sound in films. Uh-huh. There was there was even one of his films from the 90s called Nouvelle Vague. Um, was released by this German label ECM. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 the soundtrack, not not as in here's all the music from the movie. It's mm-hmm. the audio track from the movie released as a as a oh, wow. as a double CD album, and it it actually holds up in that environment because his use of sound and music, the way he he cuts things in and out, mm-hmm. and the way the the whole film anyway is made up of largely like quotations from different books and so on. Um, it just it just works as like an audio tapestry yeah. without the picture track. So wow. he him for That's me cool. like his his movies are in a way they're hard to love mm-hmm. the way you would love like I don't know like a a John Hughes movie or something. <laughs> you yeah. know there, there's that kind of like it, uh-huh. it, it reaches into like your emotions more. Yeah, he's much more the the intellectual side, but just there, there's nobody that has influenced you know my way of thinking and, mm-hmm. and interfacing with movies than him. So it's I think awesome. it's got to be him. Dude, that's great. Uh, and then finally, movie going one on one. How do you do it at the theaters? I, I usually go maybe four or five rows back, dead Ooh. center. Wow, I like to be close. close. I like to see if the uh, if the focus puller like messed up or uh-huh. you know I, I like to really see. Um, you know, I like to see it warts and all, kind yeah. of. And I like for my, uh, you know, my, my vision to be largely filled up by the film, mm-hmm. to not have too much in the peripheral that's not the movie. Right. So 
sometimes I'll go, uh, like Paul, who mm-hmm. also works here. Yeah. We go to see a movie. He, he prefers to sit much further back in the theater. Yeah. So if he's the one picking seats, I will sit where he sits. <laughs> you guys don't split up? No, no, uh-huh. no, no. But, um, yeah, I, I, I large, you know, I, I much prefer to kind of be immersed in the movie in that way. But yeah. the, the key for me is dead center. I hate sitting off axis. Right. Uh, I want to, I want to be kind of like in the center of the frame and the mm-hmm. center of the film so that things are landing kind of where I think the filmmaker wanted them to land. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And as far as, you know, snacks and that kind of thing, I'll get like a cup of water. Uh, if I get a <laughs> snack from the uh, from the concession stand, uh-huh. I will finish it during the previews, during the trailers. Yeah. And then once the movie starts, it's like yeah. no fidgeting. It's go time. It's go time. Just like lock into your seat and, yeah. you know, no, no bathroom trips, n- nothing, you know. Awesome. Yeah. That's how you do it, people. Yeah. All right, man. This is great. I I love doing this. It's great. I can't wait. Kubrick Part 2. Look for Barry Lyndon coming in about a month. Yeah. And uh, then we'll finish with Eyes Wide Shut. But I have a feeling people are going to be like, more Casey. Let's keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll – I need to dive into some Godard. So maybe we'll just sort of tackle some of the all-time classics over the next year or so. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks, brother. Thanks, Chuck. Yeah. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. If you're a fan of The Shining or Stanley Kubrick, I can't imagine that you would have wanted uh, anything more than that great, great conversation that we just had. It was a lot of fun digging in with Casey. Um, we have a good rapport, and it's always fun talking to him. He's he's one of my favorite people here at work, and uh, and I just have a lot of respect for his um, his love of film, his philosophy on film uh, and life. And um, kind of what it means to him. I really dig it. Uh, he takes it seriously, but also has fun at the movies. Um, he, he's he's proof that you can be uh, both uh, sort of academic about it, uh, as well as just being a good movie fan uh, at the end of the day. So I think all of that came through here. We had a really great conversation about The Shining. Uh, it was a true pleasure. So big thanks to Casey. Can't wait to get him in here next to talk about Barry Lyndon, a movie I have yet to see. Uh, and as we continue our, our Kubrick trilogy. And uh, and again, as you heard there at the end, we might just keep this up, everyone. Casey's such a great cinephile and a great lover of film. We might just dive into some of the great all-time classic auteurs and maybe uh, and dive into their works as well. That'd be fun to get him in here on, on Godard and uh, Kurosawa maybe because uh, a lot of these films I haven't seen. So Casey's sort of uh, introducing me uh, to all these films that have been on my long list that uh, that I'm starting to tick off. Uh, in the old watched column. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And until next week, don't grab that axe. Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. The entire first season of This Time Tomorrow is available now to binge from start to finish. In this new iHeart series presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Osvaloshin, and Cara Price as we explore the exciting possibilities of the next generation of connectivity. From smart cities to future farms, you'll find out just how much could change with future 5G networks. Listen to This Time Tomorrow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's nothing you wouldn't do for your child. 
From watching their soccer game in the pouring rain to soothing a crying baby at 4 a.m. You love your kids. So love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Car seats reduce fatal injury by 54 to 71% for toddlers and infants. Car crashes are a leading cause of death for children under 13, but when used correctly, safety restraints can dramatically reduce the risk of fatality or injury. It's critical that every trip, every time children are in the right seat for their age and size, and that children under 13 years of age are always buckled up in the back seat. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat to learn more. This message is brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.